Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome back to 2016 for another year of Love That Album podcast. Morris is joined by Tom Quay, co-host of the Tom Waits Discussion Podcast, Down in the Hole, to discuss a weighty subject, The Seven Deadly Sins, or at least how Joe Jackson interprets them musically on his 1997 album, Heaven and Hell. The sins may have had their origins in the church, but have long been interpreted in secular forms of art, literature, film, fine art and music. Regardless of whether you have a theological stance or not, the idea of these seven human qualities makes for a fascinating subject to interpret. Joe Jackson takes a long stylistic jump from his days of albums like Look Sharp or Night and Day to experiment with a mixture of classical arrangements and electronics. Every song tells a tale or sets a mood in relation to the sins, and not always in an obvious way. It's true that this album has not appealed to everyone. Listen to Tom and Morris explain why it is really very worthy of your time. Eric Reanimator pays tribute to David Bowie in his Album I Love segment by discussing his love of the so-called Berlin trilogy of albums. So, time to get philosophical and ready for Love That Album number 87. kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? episode 87 of the Love That Album podcast, my first episode for 2016. Welcome back if you've uh, been a regular listener of the show and welcome on board if this is your first time listening. My name is Morris and just like the title implies, I like to talk about great records, great music that I might have uh, just been listening to for a little bit or I might have been listening to for years and I like to invite a fellow music fanatic on the show to join me in discussing these great records and uh, a whole bunch of other things that we do in the show but we'll get to that shortly enough. Anyway, so I'd like to introduce 
a first-time co-presenter for the program. Always very exciting when I meet new music fanatics. And the music fanatic I have on the other end of a Skype connection from England. I'm not actually sure. So, oh, Tom. Tom Quee. Yes. Oh, hello. Hello. <laughs> so, actually, I forgot. So where are you actually based, Tom? I'm, I'm, I'm born, born and raised in Birmingham, uh, and some of your English listeners might detect a little bit of the brummy, as it's called in my voice, <laughs> but um, uh, home of Black Sabbath, etc., and, and, and other things. Um, but I'm currently in orca- Electric Light Ele- Orchestra. Electric Light Orchestra and um, Frank Skinner and, 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 and other sort of cultural figures. But, um, yeah, I'm currently in Oxford, the very famous university town. Uh, I moved here fairly recently, and, um, yeah, I'm currently based in Oxford. But thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is so. This is so great to be on board, and um, really excited to get into today's album. Thank you very much for uh, being part of it. So, um, Tom, uh, I discovered a few weeks ago, and he and his uh, podcasting partner Sam Wiles host a fantastic show called Down in the Hole. Now, I'm not going to steal your thunder, please, Tom. Hmm. Uh, describe to the listeners what Down in the Hole is all about. Down in the Hole is a Tom Waits podcast. It is a podcast entirely dedicated to the American singer-songwriter Tom Waits, who I'm sure many of the listeners will be equated with, whether just purely by virtue of his voice or by his incredible songwriting ability. I mean, in my eyes, he is the most consistent songwriter. And it's like I'm biased because I do a podcast about Tom Waits, and I'm a Tom Waits <laughs> mega fan. And of course, course i'm going to say that but i genuinely think objectively if you measure the musical output of tom waits in terms of just album by album the quality of those albums and the sense in which he grows as a musician he is the best and that's essentially what we're trying to discuss on down in the hole down in the hole is uh, a podcast where every episode is we're just going through tom's career chronologically we're doing all his studio albums all his live albums weirdly i can't really think of anyone else i don't know if you can where um, his third album, so a very early live album, is completely original material, uh, that being yes. Nighthawks of Tom Waits. Uh, I, I, is there anyone I, else you can think well, of? Well, yes, actually, funnily enough, okay. I can. The artist, we actually haven't said what album we're covering today. We're covering right. Joe, Joe Jackson's album, Heaven and Hell. Yes. But his album, uh, Big World, apart from the fact that he told the audience yes. no applause, right. but Big World is a, a live album. It was recorded in front of an audience, and it is all original material. So there you go. We have a connection. <laughs> That is a great link, yeah. Uh, so we basically, on um, we chart, go through his career, as I said. Um, we're currently on episode 11, which is just the tail end of his Frank's trilogy. Came out in 1987. That's Frank's Wild Years. So, I mean, albums you, listeners might be more aware of with Tom is uh, things like Closing Time, Heart of Saturday Night, Small Change, Rain Dogs. Uh, so every episode finds myself and, as Maurice says, Sam Wiles, my co-host, discussing the album. And we like to think of ourselves a little bit unique in the sense that we like to go long on an album. Like, we like to really get into the depths. I mean, on the most recent Rain Dogs release, uh, we broke three hours, went to three and a half hours <laughs> on a single album, which is just ridiculous. And I, I, I want to stress that... It's, we're not in being too indulgent, even though that sounds like a contradictory statement, because it's longer than the Titanic, is how long we speak about <laughs> Rain Dogs. The, the cinema cut of the Titanic is just as long as that. Um, but it, it's, it's crazy. But yeah, I mean, there's 19 tracks. You spend like five or six minutes on track. It's going to spin out into that. But we do context as well. Um, we're very much into charting Tom as a person as well as an artist. So we have a lot of interviews. We, I mean, I know you had Barney Hoskins on your podcast, which is pretty incredible, actually. Yes. Um, really helpful interview. Barney Hoskins, a uh, brilliant, brilliant uh, rock journalist who, amongst other books, has written... Um, Low Side of the Road, a brilliant biography of Tom. He also wrote um, uh, some sort of Cocaine Cowboys or something about the Laurel Canyon. Yes, uh, I need to get around right. reading yeah. that. Um, that's another really good one. So, yeah, we, we delve into Tom's life, basically, and we go 
really long. As I said, we started off maybe with his early albums going about an hour, but now we're averaging two and a half hours, three hours, because we just love his music. You know, I've, I've, me and Sam have both been fans of him. Me and Sam have both been friends, I should say, since we were like 16, 17. I'm now 23. And I've been a fan of Tom pretty much since me and Sam have been friends, really. And I've been a real fan of Tom. Like, I really, I think if you listen to Tom and you delve into his discography, it was so, so interesting for me to hear Rain Dog, which is a very wild album of his mid-period, and then to listen to Mule Variations, a later album. And he's kind of sobered up, but also gotten weirder. And then to listen to his earlier stuff, where he's like this jazz poet. He's really schizophrenic. So I felt compelled to kind of chart his trajectory. So... Yeah, if you want to uh, if you want to listen to us, uh, we're down in the hole, as Morris says. You can find us on YouTube. Uh, just search Tom Waits Podcast down in the hole. We're also on iTunes, of course. Um, and one of the things me and Sam like to do, we're such Tom Waits obsessors. We it's not like doing a fortnightly three-hour podcast is enough for us. So we also write blog posts about Tom Waits. <laughs> On a, on a it's, it sounds mad saying it out loud actually how how crazy we are about this guy but yeah um, if you just search Tom Waits blog down in the hole it's uh, TomWaitsPodcast.wordpress.com is the actual blog itself and we just post articles on there kind of think of it like a kind of BuzzFeed but exclusively about Tom Waits so we've had like the twelve best Tom Waits instrumentals um, I'm currently writing an article which will be live probably by the time this uh, episode goes live about Tom Waits' best sidemen the twelve best musicians that he's collabed with on record and there have been wow. some absolutely fantastic musicians. We're talking the organ of Ronnie Barron, uh, Mark Rebo's amazing guitar player, as well as Fred Tackett from Little Feet. He's amazing on Swordfish. Uh, Jim Hugot's bass. All, the, all these great players. And finally, as well, you can find us on Twitter. Um, I run the Twitter, and I obsessively share images of Tom Waits and facts of Tom Waits. I just try and get discussion going about Tom Waits. We've got over uh, 1,100 followers now. So people wow. are really, you know. It's pretty crazy, actually. Yeah, people have people really take to you know that sort of content, and um, people people seem to be enthusiastic. Just recently, actually, I found a unbelievable um, liar cover. This Japanese player playing a liar covering old fifty five and Christmas card from a hooker in Minneapolis. Oh my And um, it's unbelievable. I shared it on the Twitter. I will reshare it um, hopefully in time for people on this pod to look back. But just go through the Twitter feed; it'll be there. But yeah, I just found that through the Twitter for a fan, and it was just mind blowing, really. So yeah, you can follow us at Tom Waits Podcast. Uh, Thank you so much. Let's go on to the album. That's the, that's the plug over the way. Thank you. <laughs> you, you can plug it anytime you like. As I said, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the show. And uh, you. You, know, you guys certainly do uh, cover every album more than thoroughly. <laughs> I think in, in the end, uh, your podcast should probably stand as the definitive critical document of Tom's work. And I have to say that you know, there have been moments during uh, the shows where I thought, hang on, I completely disagree with that. But I love the yes. fact that you put those opinions out there. Even really between you and Sam, you don't agree on anything. No, no, no. no, all, you, no. And, and I, can't remember, I think it might have been you who uh, broke my heart when you said that you didn't like time. Uh, oh, uh, no, no, no. Plodding, I think. Like, oh, you, know, oh, you horrible, you horrible <laughs> man. Get off, get off this podcast. Um, <laughs> anyway, so there you go. Down in the hole. Uh, and that's, that's I, no, really, seriously, I think the thing that uh, listeners should get out of it is that you guys are not afraid to be critical. And you know, Tom oh, no, Waits no. may be your big hero, but you're not afraid to sort of say, well, this song doesn't work and here's why. And, mm -hmm. you know, you can, you can write in to uh, Sam and, and Tom and say why you disagree as uh, we were speaking off air you were telling me that one such fan has done want to just say a little bit about that <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Um, basically, our, our most recent episode is Frank's Wild Years, which, I mean, our earlier episodes were kind of noted, especially in our YouTube comments, for us being, like you say, quite critical because we want to keep up a constant critical, we want to keep up a constant quality barometer. If we say a song's good on Rain Dogs, we want that to stand against a song we say is good on his first album. You know, they, it, there has to be a sort of parity or else what's the point of being a critic, really? Like, you, you're not really showing a genuine opinion. You're just kind of flip-flopping. So we were quite harsh on in our latest album, Frank's Wild Years. Me and Sam both weren't as taken with it as we were his kind of wilder earlier output and um, a guy got in touch with us a fan uh, Tom Waits podcast at gmail.com if you want to get in contact with us and it was pretty much 2,000 words and it was him um, disagreeing with us saying enjoy the podcast it was lighthearted, but giving his own track by track review you know he's reviewing all 17 tracks the album a paragraph each going into depth what it means to him and that really opened my eyes really I mean obviously this isn't an object. This isn't an objective thing at all. Like you know, I, it, people. It's mad. It was like I remember when I was younger and I didn't have much music, and um, you know, you would take what CDs you got. And my cousin, my older cousin, who I always looked up to, gave me for some reason a Bon Jovi CD, and he gave me a forgettable. I mean, I'm not a big Bon Jovi fan, but he didn't give me Slippery and Wet. He didn't give me New Jersey or Keep the Faith. He gave me Bounce, an album that no one knows about, an album from the mid 2000s, post It's My Life, a terrible album. But I listened to it a lot because it was all I had, and some of those songs i remember fondly but i know that it's bad but for some reason it was good to me yes. and you know that, that i can't explain it listen to the song undivided by bon jovi it's ter- the riff the drop d riff is so basic it makes me cringe on a list i'm like how did, how did richie sambora i mean he's not a bad guitar player if you if you youtube best richie sambora guitar moments it's a video i used to watch a lot when i was younger i really looked up to him in a weird way um it's killer he's a talented player and he just he's just you know, this coked out rock star doesn't give a hell anymore because he's a billionaire. I mean, whatever, I agree with that. But, you know, people can love the album. So, yes, a fan got in touch and uh, it was it was a really long kind of diatribe, but it was fun to read. And we're going to read it out on the next episode. The next episode, we'll be covering Tom Waits' big time, um, his kind of foray into live um, music. But, yeah, I mean, people don't agree. People do agree. This is I don't think we're necessarily going to agree a lot on Heaven and Hell. I mean, this is going to be mostly positive from my eyes, definitely. But that's the beauty of it, isn't it? It's kind of like you can see something in a film and you yes. can disagree moment by moment on how a character plays something. But instruments and composition is so objective. Sound is just there. And it's kind of weird to say you like a song because there's nothing concrete there. There's, there's a disc there. There's a vinyl there. But what you're actually experiencing was just a moment and you know everyone sees this same moment differently it's it's, yes, it's a wild exactly. you know um all right yeah. so what we'll do uh, i think we're both chomping at the bit to get into uh yes. discussion uh, as i yes. said we're, we're going to be discussing uh joe jackson's album heaven and hell uh and um we'll be uh, talking about that in a few minutes what we're going to do though first is we're going to go to Eric Reanimator's album I love segment. If this is your first time listening to the program, uh, Eric Reanimator out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, does basically in 10 minutes what it's going to take uh, Tom and myself two hours or more possibly to do is to talk about an album. Actually, he's going to talk about three albums in 10 minutes. And normally, uh, Eric, he goes by the brief of, right, what album are you going to be talking about? Okay, I'll find something parallel to talk about, something that's musically similar, lyrically or thematically similar. And what he's gone and done, he's gone a little bit lateral here. Uh, because He's going to be talking, well, at the time of this recording, it's been maybe about uh, almost two weeks, I think, since the, uh, since the very sad passing of uh, yes, David Bowie. January 11th, it's January the 23rd today, so yeah, right. not even two weeks. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, 
he's uh, going to talk about David Bowie's Berlin trilogy, and given that Joe Jackson has spent a large chunk of uh, his musical life living and working out of uh, the city of Berlin, uh, I thought, okay, that's a that's an interesting uh, connection between the mm. two artists. And given that Joe Jackson is a huge David Bowie fan, it also seemed appropriate. And I, I guess you know it's also appropriate to be able to speak uh, about Bowie on a program such as this. And you know, at some stage, you know, maybe down. Uh, further in the year, we'll find a Bowie album to talk about in uh, greater length. But for the moment, here's Eric Reanimator talking about uh, David Bowie's Berlin Trilogy. You're listening to Love That Album with myself, I'm Morris, and with Tom, and we'll be back shortly. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. A one, two, a one, two, three, four. Hallelujah, 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 Now it's time for An Album I Love with Eric Reanimator. Reanimator. David Bowie released three albums. These are known as the Berlin Trilogy. The first of which is called Low. The second of which is called Heroes, in quotation marks. And the last is simply called Lodger. Usually I just talk about one album, but when it comes to David Bowie, it was really these three albums with their 1970s kraut rock, German, Switzerland picky pop related influence that has really been my Bowie albums. These are the ones that I return to. These are the ones that I own. These are the ones that I listen to. With the phase of Ziggy Stardust behind him, the Aladdin Sains and the Diamond Dogs behind him, this is Bowie looking for a reinvention as he did over and over. This is that, that period where he had yet to decide to become a pop star when he was done being that proto-punk rocker and him and Iggy were hanging out and Lou Reed was around and these three punk guys who are proto-punk guys who had been there at the ground floor in their own way sitting there in the late 70s trying to figure out what's next who knows, maybe they didn't know about what was going on back in the UK and in the States. Doubt that they had heard the nuns or the dead boys or the weirdos. I'm sure that they might have had some inklings about the Sex Pistols and the Clash. 
and of course my beloved The Damned. But this is this is them riffing on new and craft work and all that great 70s kraut rock. I think everybody knows the hits from this era, so I'm going to uh, pull back and kind of hit some of my deeper cuts. I'll be honest, these are albums that I don't listen to for particular tracks, but listen to as albums. You know, you put it on, you let it play on repeat in the car or wherever. To that end, let's take a sample. It's clear listening to these albums that uh, Bowie wasn't just a rocker. It was no surprise when he embraced industrial and uh, trance and EDM and all that stuff. Uh, you know, it's, it's really hard for me to, to really say anything that hasn't been said by so many other people. But while Bowie was not my rock idol... He was right up there with the best. And the fact that he left so much music and that he was willing to explore so much music and that his music and the things he did outside of music touched so many people kind of gives you hope for humanity and being weird and being into this stuff. So while you're out there remembering Bowie, don't just play the hits. Don't just go for the comfortable 
easy listening of that 70s classic or that 80s pop record you grew up with or that 90s industrial experimental thing explore check out some of these 70s Berlin era records it's Eric Ranimator catch y'all later Hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash lovethatalbum and start a music-related discussion. And we're back. Thanks very much, Eric, for uh, your Album I Love segment there. And Eric will be back in February with another Album I Love segment. And also with his Love It Album, the compilation edition episodes. Please follow those if you have not already done so. All right. So as I've said already, we're going to be discussing uh, Joe Jackson's album, uh, heaven and hell. But before we actually start talking about that and what the album means to us, I, I basically, I put out a call on one of the Joe Jackson fan pages, Joe Jackson Facebook fan pages, I should say. And, you know, about two, three weeks ago saying I was going to be uh, talking about this, uh, with Tom on the program and say, look, are there any people out there in this community and the people there have been, you know, have gone and written some wonderful things on the Facebook page, you know, very articulate and very interesting things about their love of Joe's music. And I said, look, is there anyone want to send me an email to specifically say what they think about the Heaven and Hell album and I'll read it out on the show. And I'm absolutely overjoyed and wrapped. I got three responses, which really for this show is a lot. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, I'm going to read those out, and uh, we'll probably address some of these issues in you know once we start talking about the album mm-hmm. proper. But uh, anyway, so look, the first one came from a fellow called Bert. He didn't um, give me a surname, but that's okay. So he says, "Hi, my thoughts about this album. My first thought: after Night Music, another classical album. I like Night Music a lot. Ever After and the man who wrote Danny Boy are great songs. Only the future and sea of secrets are nice." but those nocturnes are not my thing. Heaven and Hell, however, only great songs. Not one song is the same. Great guest appearances, for example, the great voice of Jane Sibri. Brad Roberts' voice is perfect for Sloth. Joy Mm. Askew and and Dawn Upshaw on Tuzla, in my opinion, the best song on this album. 
Joe singing through an army phone, lyrics which are 19 years later are still applicable. The also great song, Right, which the drum solo was recorded in New York from a street drummer drumming on a plastic basket. Seen Joe live this tour three times, only performing with Valerie Vigoda and Elise Morris. Of course, a little disappointed about the three-person tour instead of a full band, but those three persons were great on this tour and did forget my first opinion. On this tour, I liked the the what's this the 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 most the lounge version of stepping out and Joe on stage with a radio scanning Dutch radio stations and start <laughs> and start singing hometown which reminds me of a great tour Joe made oh, a lot of great albums but his one this one is in my top five cheers Bert thank you so much for that Bert uh, yeah look I can only imagine what it would have been like to see uh, Joe singing through the army phone if you I think he he does that in the um, Sessions at West 54th special, which uh, we've both watched there on um, on YouTube. In fact, I actually yes. remember watching it when it was showing on late night TV here about the time it came out. And, <laughs> and um, holy moly, yeah, that, that's still a great show. If you haven't actually seen Sessions at West 54th, that special, I mean, it goes song by song rather than the whole thing in one hit, but it's there just to search it out on YouTube. Joe Jackson's sessions with West 54th, and he basically, rather than going through his career, he does the Heaven and Hell album from start to finish. Uh, if you're a fan of the album, uh, even if you're not, it's still well worth watching just to see who he gets on and uh, the instrumentation. It's really, really clever. So the uh, second email I uh, received, let's uh, make my way through this. Hang on a sec. Okay, is from someone called Lindsay Maglito. And uh, Lindsay... Uh, is a regular contributor to uh, the Facebook page. So uh, she says, Hi, Morris. This is Lindsay Maglito from the Joe Jackson Group on Facebook. I recently posted about Heaven and Hell in a conversation with someone in our group. My post below sums up my thoughts on the album. Uh, Heaven and Hell has finally grown on me. It took some time, but now I can fully appreciate Joe's work on the album. It was just so far removed from anything else he's done that I wasn't sure about it. Too bad those who'd love Heaven and Hell as much as we do will never know this album existed. I'd like to think that pop, rock, jazz, and classical music lovers alike could like this album if they gave it a chance. I'd also like to add that I liked Angel and Right right off, but the album as a whole was hard to digest at first. It wasn't until I watched the sessions at West 54th show in full, and not just the two songs performed from it, that I listened to the actual album a few more times and fell in love with Heaven and Hell. So that's my story. Feel free to use all or part of my post and or email address for your podcast. Good luck. Thanks, Lindsay. Look, thanks very much, Lindsay. I'll, you know, I'll give my game away a little bit that those two songs that you mentioned, Angel and Right, uh, have always been my favourites off uh, the album and uh, but I'll go further on and say you know whether I found it challenging I will say something I don't know where you sit on this Tom is that mm. probably a lot of my favorite Joe Jackson albums were the ones that took a few listens to really fully appreciate there were mm-hmm. uh, the ones that I liked straight off the bat I still like but the ones that took me a while to sort of say well do I like this do I not um, were the ones that I probably would say were amongst my favorites which is possibly why i um uh, I, I still have some hope for uh, fast forward you know that's i'm still on the stage do i love this do i not i don't know but um uh all right so one last letter that we have here 
And this is from uh, Gary Gelb, who is uh, the guy who actually started the Facebook group, the, uh, the, uh, the Joe Jackson Facebook group. Uh, okay, well, here, I'll let him explain. He says, hi, Morris and Tom. This is Gary, creator of the Joe Jackson Facebook group called Joe Jackson Has Other Songs Besides Is She Really Going Out With Him? A rather long title. Uh, hope I'm not too late, but here are my thoughts on Heaven and Hell. Looking back at the full catalog of JJ music from Look Sharp through Fast Forward, Heaven and Hell to me is JJ... Uh, at one of his all-time creative peaks. While previous material shows a great diversity in style and his willingness to experiment, here he throws a wide variety of different things into the pot and delivers a delicious stew. With the introduction of more classically oriented instruments, guest singers filling in for him, operatic vocals here and there, along with an almost Broadway musical-sounding singing style in some parts, the Joe Jackson vocals on Passacaglia. Uh, Joe sticks to his declaration after the release of Night and Day, and I'm paraphrasing that he's simply going to create the best music he can, regardless of what anyone else thinks and whether or not it is commercial. With all this, Joe gets back to his more traditional rock sound at the beginning of Right, uh, through the song... Though the song quickly introduces uh, more unusual elements that we hear throughout Heaven and Hell, I'm hearing what sounds like street sounds during traffic, then it fades out to the more classical sound, and then quickly back to some raucous piano-pounding, angry-sounding rock. In the end, if you are adventurous, get bored easily, and enjoy a large buffet that includes a variety of dishes that have nothing to do with one another, yet are perfectly complementary, you're potentially going to love this record. If you want to hear the same old stuff, the hits in conventional rock or new wave or whatever, stay far, far away from heaven and hell. It may not be, it may not be amongst Joe's best, but on the other hand, it actually may be. Gary Gelb. NYC, uh, sitting in my living room during a huge snowstorm, 23rd of January 2016. So we only just received this email. Yeah, what, what great emails as well. Absolutely. All of those were, all of those were fantastic. They're great all, great they're all passionate about the album. So yeah. thank you, folks. I'm, I'm so, so grateful that you took the time to share your thoughts. Uh, this is an album that I really do have a lot to say about, and I know Tom does too. Uh, and just the fact that you took the time to share your thoughts on this podcast, it really, really means a lot to me, and I hope that uh, we don't let you down in what we have to say about uh, about this no. record. So, look, I, I think even though this has been a fairly short segment, we'll go have one more break, and then we'll launch into uh, our thoughts about the album proper. So, uh, you're with uh, myself and Tom. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 87. We'll be back in a moment. Hi, I'm John Water. Hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Henriksen. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert Pune. Miguel Ferrer. Nancy Allen. Robert Davi. Richard Elfman. Ileana Douglas. Patrick Warburton. Wingshauser. Cliff DeYoung. Steve Railsbeck. Mr. D. William Cass. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemart since 1994. Since early 2011, I've been co-hosting the Projection Booth podcast. Try us, won't you? I never try anything. I just do it. Visit the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com. And we're back. So we're, it's finally here, however many minutes into the show, and uh, Tom and I are finally going to be talking about 1997's Joe Jackson album called Heaven and Hell. Uh, now, I've covered two other Joe Jackson albums on the show, 
And apart from Bruce Springsteen, I try not to treble up on an individual artist, especially since, you know, there's a ton of artists that I want to discuss that I haven't covered yet. Uh, in a way, though, a case could be made that, you know, how, due to how wildly different these three albums have been, and, you know, there was Night and Day covered, I think, maybe episode nine or ten, somewhere fairly early on, and I'm the Man, which we only covered 12 months ago, and this one, Heaven and Hell, they're so diverse as to almost be like three different artists. So I feel like, you know, justified mm. that I could do that. Um, and truth be known, this has been an album that I've long wanted to discuss on the show. And I'm grateful that you know, I found Tom, who is also someone who wanted to talk about this album. So it was, um, so it was uh, inevitable. I, I guess this has been something that we discussed in previous shows, and it's often written in by lazy journalists that you know Joe spent a lot of his career being called the poor man's Elvis Costello. Uh, you know, as I said, I think that's really typically lazy rock journalism. And yeah, I mean, the, the one thing that the two of them do have in common is they're both great songwriters who have been musically very adventurous and gone sonically to so many places. Uh, mm. So I just, but I don't know why a lot of the rock journalists have said like he's a poorer songwriter and he's dull and this and that. And there was a we had ridiculous a, claims. Well, I got I, I got to say we have. A, a Melbourne uh, radio announcer who very unwisely said uh, that um, this album was completely pretentious. And before we sort of start talking about the album, I just want to sort of say that uh, pretentious, I think, is the most stupid uh, description one can make of uh, a, a work of art. Uh, pretentious to me, and certainly this one, uh, pretentious to me means that you're saying something about an album that you don't believe, but you want other people to think that you believe. You're pretending to be something that you're not. Mm. And Joe has basically gone to places here. He found that the whole purpose of this album, if you haven't heard it, is it's him discussing in his way through the various songs, the seven deadly sins. And uh, he, he, he might talk about, you know, whatever each sin will go through it, but he'll, he'll, um, discuss something in a song. He'll tell a story that might bear some relation to what that sin is. This is not a theological album, and I'm not sure where you're going to go with it, Tom. But I'm I'm certainly not planning on having any great uh, theological things to say about the album, but just more about what those vices or so, mm. so-called sins actually are. But regard because Joe may not be a uh, a church-going Catholic or something like that. That he's not pretending anything. He, he's just some. He's just someone who has something to say about these songs. So I, I think that you know, yes. saying that this album is pretentious. I mean, at least by my definition of what pretentious is, was one of the most stupid fucking <laughs> things that you could say. Criticisms that you could say about the album. If you want to say that the melodies do nothing for you, or you, you pers- in that personal regard, then that's a fair enough criticism. But to say to put a blanket statement to say it's pretentious, I don't know. Anyway, that's that's uh, my opening gambit. Mm. Uh, but um, 
anyway, so did you have anything that you wanted to say before we sort of like launched yeah. into, into the album proper? Yeah, totally. I, I think I just want to leap off on your point about the theological idea, because obviously that's kind of what the seven deadly sins are wrapped up in inevitably. Mm. But it's interesting more to consider it from an artistic point of view. Like the seven deadly sins have always been explored by people. I'm thinking Dante, you know, the purgatory um, and the, the inferno. I'm thinking Jeffrey Chaucer's The Parson's Tale. I'm thinking even um, the classic Elizabethan Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. You know, these are things that artists have always exploited, always used as signposts. And Joe is not using any of these sins as commandments, as it were, to say, thou shall not do. Right. He's just using them as tenants of human being of, of existence these are things that we've all experienced in, in in some way or another i mean i know that joe perhaps a little cringily um disgusted an interview that i've read prior to this where he's talking about i think he's talking about the fifth song wrath uh, the idea of jealousy or something no envy he's talking about and so it's something he's never felt you know or whatever like that but these are all things that we as listeners definitely have felt and they are just leaping off points they're catalysts for his art really absolutely you know? and, yep and and it, it embodies it, 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 I don't. I don't want to kind of say it's it's brave of Joe to lose, but it's definitely a, a great undertaking, and it, it's a great framework for someone whose earlier classical work has been enjoyable. I mean, this is worth noting. This isn't Joe's classical music debut by any means. I believe he had two before this. He did. He did. Um, he did an album Willpower, called Willpower. Willpower. Yeah. He, uh, he did um, uh, the album before this, which is called Night Music, uh, mm. which were sort of more. They weren't like full orchestral pieces. Not that this one is either, but um, as I think, you know, one of the uh, one of the um, people who sent in feedback, Bert, went and mentioned that you know there were these nocturnes in between several uh, classically oriented vocals, and um, uh, I guess the other, uh, probably another, not a whole album, but the one song of uh, Blaze of Glory called uh, Sentimental Thing. I think mm. musically that was a signpost towards. Uh, this totally. album in a way and and just in the same way that you know your five act structure or your three act structuring narrative helps to just flesh out and build some sort of tension and resolve within your compositions joe's using this joe's using the the, the well it's eight songs but the seven sins yes. and i think it's it's very interesting i mean we'll kind of get onto this as, as, as we get onto the prelude but i love albums and uh, uh that can sort of the final song plays into the first song as it were yes, it gives yes, you this so sense of kind of the almost like a chinese finger trap the sort of the sound is coming in i think probably maybe the the example that comes to mind is the wall um by pink floyd mm-hmm. in which the final song outside the wall has someone saying isn't this where we and then the first song you hear someone say came in and you hear like a door open or close or something and we have this within prelude and the, the last song song of daedalus we have that kind of just the sense of raw chaos the sense of nothingness and something coming from nothingness because i guess by doing the seven sins joe is taking us both in his sense he's being quite existential he's definitely being outside the issue i mean it's, it's unbelievable to me that blaze of glory is less than 10 years before this and that this has always been in his dna this classical leanings i mean you know you can look even to duke ellington releases recently to show that he's always experimental but just for him to go outside that pop mainstream and to go here it's 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 very mythic you know you, you sort of never imagined that the guy who went and wrote sunday papers was going to yeah. come up with something musically <laughs> like papers. this which yeah. is, i mean look you know both look sharp and heaven and hell are wonderful albums completely different reasons i, I mean look I, i'd almost make the case that this is less of a development I, I guess you could sort of say the same thing about tom waits that 
I'd say that uh, Heaven and Hell is less of an evolution from hmm. from those original punky pop albums, but just more like, right, I've explored that. Now I want to explore this. I mean, that's not to say that he could have come out with Heaven and Hell on day one, but he might have been able to. Is I, I think a true evolution is like you know what the Beatles did um, over the course, of, you know, going from Please mm-hmm. Please Me to eventually to uh, uh, Sgt. Pepper, or, or even yeah. in the short term, in the first four of them, there's a genuine evolution from Please Please Me to uh, Revolver. Uh, mm-hmm. and they they helped change music, plus they were listening to what was going on around them. This is more of like, well, this is what I'm interested in doing now. I can go back and do another Look Sharp, uh, which effectively, I guess, he did with Volume 4. But mm-hmm. Uh, he, this is more, uh, it seems to me more like a, uh, a, a, just basically a declaration. Now I want to do this. Now I want to do yes. that. And he's, he's done the jazz things with the, the score for, uh, Tucker. Uh, yes. He's yeah. done the Latin stuff for Night and Day. Uh, he, he pursued electronics for Night and Day too, which I have to say is not an album I like. Right. I'm actually quite a big fan of that one. I think uh, I think Dear Mom is one of his best lyrical performances. I think if you read the lyrics of that of that album, it's it's quite wonderful. And um, but yeah, I, 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 I can see what you, I can definitely see what you're saying. There is a very, very respectable um, creativity of this man. There's a, there's a sense that it, it's it's unbridled, really. And, you know, uh, Rain um, from 2009, which is down we spoke about previously that I'm really into that is just him in in pop songwriter mode, which Yes. You, you know, you're kidding yourself if you don't think that's as difficult to do as Heaven and Hell. Like, you know, th- this sort of thing, it may come naturally, but it's still very hard to compose and very hard to put together. And that's what I've always kind of loved about Joe. Joe, to me, has always been a kind of classic, a kind of classic pop songwriter, really. You know, he and we see this throughout the album as well, despite this being very experimental and very out there. His melodic phrasing is still very Joe. It's it's still very rounded. He, he avoids too many syllables in lines. He likes kind of solid images and nice, neat rhymes. He he knows how to how to how to how to structure his verses. And I think that's what's beautiful about Heaven and Hell. In the same way Heaven and Hell as concepts are like diametrically opposite and allow for this delicious tension. There is Joe, the pop songwriter, in the in the kind of classical mode here. And it, it's nice that he doesn't abandon either. They, 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 they're together. If you look at the album cover itself, there is Jesus, but there's a guitar. Like there's the devil, but then there's classical art. Like yes. you know, there's the perfect kind of one and one. I mean, the album cover is kind of ideal um, for gazing at as you listen to it. Right, right. Uh, and we were discussing off air beforehand about um, his biography, A Cure for Gravity. And mm. really, it, it was a long time before he actually listened to pop music. He started out listening to uh, a lot of classical music, in particular a lot of 20th century classical music which really when you listen to this comes as no surprise whatsoever and strangely enough he went to the uh, Royal Academy of Music and uh, he, his uh, major there was percussion um, so uh-huh. he has, has that in common with Ben Folds who um, uh, he was a drummer originally yeah 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 so um, there you go anyway let's talk let's start going uh, track by track now as uh, if, if you've been a listener to the show for only like the last year or so then what you may not be aware is when I started doing this program, I would go song by song. And then maybe the last year and a half, I've decided for the most part, not always, but for the most part, to be doing a more overreaching umbrella sort of effect, talk about the album in general and use individual songs to illustrate certain points about the album. But I think an album like this, where we're talking about the seven deadly sins, each tune, each song where he had a different point to make, 
uh, warranted its own discussion. So we're going to go track by track this time around. Let's start talking about the uh, opening cut on the album, which is The Prelude. So the album opens up, as I said, with a prelude. It's just called Prelude. Now, I'm not classically trained, although I've listened to a lot of classical music over my life, but I wasn't sure what the difference was between a prelude and an overture. Now, I'm guessing the difference is based based on this example is the prelude is not like a medley of tunes used later in in the work and stands in its own right, whereas an overture, at least I guess in the modern musical sort of context, is it, you know, it sort of seems more like a, a medley of tunes. I think I might have read one opinion that said that an overture was a type of prelude. Um, okay. And a prelude is an introduction for a main body of work without specifically being a, a trailer. This is the way we're going to go. Uh, and you're going to recognize all these hits later on. And as you've already gone and pointed out, we do come full circle at, in the last song of the album, which does represent musically a couple of the themes that we get earlier on in the album but by and large this prelude sort of stands on its own merits and it is a great musical introduction uh Mm. and there is a motif that that is in this prelude as i said that shows up later on and the but it's it's musically appropriate i love the structure of this um i I love how like we start off with this if you will the, the devil's instrument the the violin and that's you know it seems to be used a lot in art you know you're seeing the devil playing the violin or maybe it's just because when you have young kids who play the the violin it sounds <laughs> like you're in hell um, it's very satanic yeah and very much and uh, i don't know if you're familiar with a, a piece by a uh, saint called a uh, dance macabre and when the first time i heard this it sort of brought that tune to mind you, you just mm. in, in dance macabre you sort of have the the impression that you know the devil is just, just sort of like he's standing out there in the middle of hell and he's he's got all these poor tortured souls and he said right I'm, I'm going to do a concert for you and I'm going to play this piece and <laughs> and uh, this opening thing here I mean it it, it sounds uh, very macabre and um, oh, distressing is not the word but it it does sound purely evil and you know he, Joe is opening up with uh, with this slingshot right off the bat he's not leading you into it it's like right off the bat he plays this motif. And it sounds like, right, this is the journey I'm going to take you on. Are you ready for it? And then it sort of like leads into a fairly sort of more gentle piece with the band, like he's lulling you into this false sense of security mm. before closing off with that uh, with that uh, little piece of hell again. And I just I just think that's uh, absolutely so clever what he's what he's. It, it is it is wonderful. It, it it opens as like a sort of dark churning furnace. You know, there's just kind of this droney notes, and then that um, lovely. I, I mean, what you see is I definitely do see it as devilish, but almost playful, almost tongue in cheek. It's kind of this really lovely melody. It shoots like a, you know a hot shaft of light. It, it's really tense. 
There's a real sense of occasion to this. There's a real sense of introduction. It's not just a violin intro to open up a little folk album to fill out a minute and a half. There's a sense of purpose, a sense of being, you know, being being in a real environment here. You know, the, the violin carries across to a kind of it's it's playful but important. There's there's a great sense of rising passion. I mean, I'm just checking now. I think this song is like you know under three minutes you know it's just kind of like it's almost i think it's one of the more conventional lengths that we have on the album really oh, yeah, one of the, the, sh- uh, definitely the, the shortest track on the album it's yeah. definitely the shortest track yeah i mean i think there's a i think um anger is about four and a half minutes but the rest of them are kind of five to eight or whatever but yeah i love the like i say i just i just i just love the sort of the hellishness of it as you say and then we kind of interestingly go from the sort of strings when they release into kind of more of a dutiful kind of xylophone and kind of the close quarters of lounge music kind of like I guess any sort of um, is she really going out of him fans would maybe like breathe a sigh of relief as the song kind of comes to a close but you know the, the, not not for long so we'll start talking now about the first sin on the album which is the second track on the album this is called Fugue number one more is more So the first sin that Joe has chosen to sing about on the album is about uh, gluttony. So what I'm going to do with each one of these songs is um, give a little definition as looked up on Wikipedia or excellent or some site. So we can sort of you know, write this definition. Do we agree with it? Do we not agree with it? Uh, and how does how does the song play up to that definition? So gluttony has been defined as overindulgence and overconsumption to the point of waste. Um, okay, I think, I think I can go with that. Yes, um, yes. Now, as I said before, I don't intend really to go down the path of discussing the religious origin of the sins, and you know that would be really more, I guess, the domain of someone who's more theologically astute than I am. But as you've already gone and said, Tom, you know, the sins seem to still be a fascinating basis for storytelling in secular literature, and you've gone and given some uh, some fantastic example and uh, you know other forms of the arts. I mean, there's plenty of paintings that uh, bring up uh, that bring up sins or, or you know the yes, certainly, and certainly, I mean, there was a time for uh, for art where uh, everything was religiously based. Anyway, you know, there's so many mm-hmm. so many great images of uh, you know God or Satan. Um, and uh, there's been plenty of stuff in uh, in film uh, as well. I mean, I guess you know more more recently, you know, the one that comes to mind, the, the obvious one is Seven. But, yes, um, of course. But uh, obviously, uh, another another one that I really like is going back to uh, the late '60s with uh, Dudley Moore and Peter Cook in uh, Bedazzled, and uh, all, right. all all the Seven Deadly. Oh, you haven't seen the film? You should. You should. Really I, ha- I have not. No. You, okay. you should really check that. The Seven Deadly Sins are all. Um, uh, they're all servants who work for uh, who work for uh, the Peter Cook Satan character. 
Mm. Uh, and uh, very, very fun. And uh, really, I guess most men who've watched the film would say that Raquel Welsh's Lillian Lust was their favourite. Right, inevitably, yeah. <laughs> yeah but uh, yeah, no, I highly recommend that. It's a wonderful film. So anyway, so this first song is called More Is More, and it's defined as a fugue. Now, once again, because you know, not being classically trained, I had to look up a definition. So Me too. My research into the definition of fugue produced this. Okay, see what uh, whether this uh, works for you. Uh, a fugue usually has three sections: an exposition, a development, and a recapitulation. It contains the return of the subject in the fugue's tonic key. Most fugues open with a short theme, the subject, which then sounds successively in each voice. After the first voice is finished. Uh, stating the subject, the second voice repeats the subject as at a different pitch, and other voices repeat in the same way. Uh, there's look, there's a ton more description that I saw on that website, but it seems that this description fits the sung verses with uh, JJ singing a melody that is a series of these three note ascension and descension. Let it rain, let it rain, da 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 um, before changing key for a second voice later on in the verse. It's it's a complex piece in some ways, with what sounds like pre programmed rhythms swirling in and out of the mix. Uh, the synth melodic uh, playing on top of the program percussion seem to ser- seem to sort of go counter rhythmically to what he's doing melodically. It's yes. all played very fast and very frantic, and the music gives you the effect of sounding like a musical swirl, as if you're circling down a basin plug hole. Uh, mm. By the last part of the music, you know, so the music speeds up with no end in sight, and that could often you know, be seen as being well, you know gluttony or really any sin in particular you, you might just sort of be led where you're beyond the point of uh, personal salvation as it were you mm-hmm. know, you, you, there's mm-hmm. there's no way of being able to get out of that sin um, yeah it's a, it's it's sorry it's just interesting you talk about joe embodying uh the sin melodically through the way he sings for me it's more the song musically seems to really embody the sin like i mean it, the song feels gluttonous in the sense that the notes keep repeating each other they keep building on each other and then at the end as we repeat on that nah, 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 it just keeps you know almost to nothingness it's, it goes from being played musically to feeling being played robotically it's like the song really does feel quite greedy whereas like i mean can a song feel like slothful i suppose can a song feel envious maybe I, arguably a song can feel angry obviously that's kind of one of the more obvious nails that's, that's the there. easiest emotion actually. yeah yeah but this song does feel gluttonous and like a common complaint for musicians is indulgence you know in terms of their own playing and joe seems to always be playing on that irony here he's kind of playing as fast as he can as wild as he can there's so many notes we come in and it's kind of like this almost it feels like something out of a playstation 90s video game this bass it's just kind of like back when you used to have like those kind of cds when you have like your own studio on a playstation you could put samples through and you could do whatever you want it has that kind of slightly midi sound to it you know and joe Joe, Joe himself is such a refined musician and obviously he is capable of such technique but rarely indulged himself here and it's just great to see him unleashing that both in the song and as you say um as he catalogues the i mean lyrically this song is absolutely fantastic really it's kind of it's joe really playing on that arc playing on that noah theme you know there's a lot of interest stuff here but for me it's more interesting when he goes away from the kind of more biblical idea to one of the more one of the closing stanzas did you hear about matt who fell into a vat well they say that he drowned but it took him a week so you have that image you have the image of a guy falling in and just constantly drinking himself to death but 
Joe plays on that. Joe almost is a fugue here. He kind of pulls it out and, and reverts it within the actual stanza itself. And he says, and they say it wasn't as strange as that when you think that he kept getting out for a leak. So then you realize that Matt wasn't imprisoned in a sense. He hadn't fell in this vat and couldn't get out. He just couldn't leave it. He was so greedy that he just couldn't, you know, he, there was no satiation for him. Yep, and there's yep. a sense with the song as well. There's no, you know, songs, two or three choruses, maybe the chorus, if you want to be like Dave Grohl, you get a bit more angry on the final chorus to give it a sense of resolution. But this song has none of it. This song almost multiplies like cancerous cells at the end. And I think the final 50 or so second song are just absolutely fantastic, really, in embodying that sense of avarice. Yes, absolutely, because he's getting faster and faster and yeah. swirling Dan and Danny just thought, right, mm. this, this guy's going to eat and drink himself to death. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, look, it, it's interesting you mentioned there about the, uh, the lyrics of it. Those two asides, or, or I guess as the development as would be going through the definition of fugue that I mentioned before, they're the more successful parts lyrically for me. I think the um, in the actual verses, I'm sometimes wondering whether Joe's trying to be a little bit too clever, where he sort of has a biblical allusions, you know, let it rain, cats and dogs, let it rain, rats and snakes, but just bring us more grog and another red steak. So he's sort of trying to sound um, biblical and or, or high literature, and then the next line is being some by someone who you know just might be down at the pub. It, it's he's trying to sort of mix the two, and I don't know that that necessarily works for me. Uh, let the skies turn to black, let it rain kangaroos, but just give us tobacco and tucker and booze. I, I don't know. I don't know that that they yeah. necessarily. I think he's sort of decided in advance, right? Oh, I'm going to try this as a contrast and. I think he would have been better off maybe sort of like, you know, using a couple of verses in one regard and then telling the humorous stories. And certainly one thing about this song and about other songs on the album is he retains a very great level of black humor. But I mm. would think that he'd say, right, okay, here's a verse with some of the black humor and here's a verse with some of the biblical allusions or, or the uh, high literature allusions if you want to. I, I don't know, does that make sort of any sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. There is, there is, I mean, if you, yeah, if you listen to this song, there's definitely a divide between the stanzas that start with let. So the, there is let it rain. And then, so, so there are four, there are six stanzas in the whole song. There are four stanzas that start with let and they're all the sort of Noah focused ones. And then we have two other characters. We have Clyde and Matt. Matt, who we mentioned, fell into a vat and, and drinks, yeah. etc. And Clyde is basically the same story. It's a guy who ate, ate ribs till he died. And when the doctors are done pumping him quite abstractly and absurdly, Clyde comes back to life. And, and, and the first thing he does when he's alive is eat more. You know, he's, he's driven by this more is more, as we say. And I love that title as well, more is more. I love the repetitiveness. I love it because you could almost sense it could go on forever. More is more is more is more is more. Like, you know, Which, and, the, and, just, the music, and the music does that. The music, the music does to that. The music constantly, like, it reminds me almost of um, when you play guitar and you have a loop pedal and you just keep putting riffs on top of riffs on top of riffs until eventually you just have this clog of noise. It doesn't sound like anything you've played. And there's a wilderness to this track. It just goes out of control. And I believe all the drums were pre-programmed and you can definitely yes. hear that kind of digital percussion on there. And it really works in the favor here. It really gives us this kind of abstract feel. And especially like the end when... Um, it kind of gets a bit more staccato with a duh, duh, duh. And, and like, um, Joe's kind of self-harmonizing his own voice with a, ah, ah, 
above the demented piano. Like there, there's a real intelligence to the structure of this song that I think I missed um, when I listened to it when I when I was younger. As I mentioned to you uh, before we listened to the podcast, I remember this album distinctly from being quite a young kid, maybe seven or eight. I remember seeing the album uh, on my computer desk when I was just hanging out with my dad and my brother. And my dad, we just put it on. My dad was who got me into Joe Jackson. Basically, he's been a huge fan since day dot. Really, and you know the song's kind of washed over me. But thinking about the sins in this regard, which I think you should definitely do when you listen to this album. I know it's about the sins and it's called Heaven and Hell, but they're definitely worth keeping in mind constantly as you do listen to it. It's just such a perfect um, evocation, really. I have to applaud Joe. Um, it, he pulls it off. It's like, you know, his opening gambit to this album, his new experimental album, is a real success. This is a fantastic track. Mm. Uh, just one final thing I wanted to say about this lyrically is I reckon that um, he must have had some inspiration for Roald Dahl for those two uh, for those two verses about Clyde yes. and Matt. They sound like yeah. really the sort of thing that come out of one of his Blackley comic books. Um, yes. Um, and uh, yeah, you can almost imagine the Oompa Loompas uh, mm. coming out and g- giving you that <laughs> lesson about greed or something after uh, after Willy Wonka has just gone and dispatched another spoiled child. Anyway, um, okay, so that's uh, covering the, the sin of gluttony. So uh, let's move on to uh, the next song, and uh, this song is called Angel. read an interview with Joe about this song and um, he was talking about uh, obviously Angel grapples with lust we should say as well before just getting into that kind of one of the probably more relatively kind of knowable sins uh, as any human being really you know and um, he talks about uh, saying quote the song is the point of view of a young guy who's horny and confused it's like he has a little cartoon angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other tempting him uh, it, it's an interesting track there is a genuine seductive rhythm to this but for me it's i think it's real strength is when you know there's the uh what did you call me and then it breaks into that nice power climb of the piano which reminded me a lot of uh, i don't know if you were the uh blaze of glory track down to london yes, yes it just kind of had that like lovely kind of rollicking rhythm that joe can always summon up on the piano and um you know i thought structurally as well this is a really interesting song it kind of i like Similarly, you know how Fugue, he's going from the Noah idea to the Clyde and, um, you know, Matt idea. It's kind of going into the, the blending of the symphony, the resonant voice, you know, that wonderful operatic voice. It's, it absolutely takes me away. You know, it's gorgeous. And then you just get, I bet she lays like a lot, like, like a, like a, <laughs> like a lump, like a lump, like a lump. Sorry. Yeah. Like a lump. And, uh, I just, I just love that. I love that, that, that garishness that Joe is not afraid to exploit. Let's, let's first give a, a definition of lust. Not that I think of our listenership. Yeah actually needs it but um 
it's and it, uh, so the definition I came up with uh, from I don't know wherever it was Wikipedia wherever uh, an intense and uncontrolled desire. It is usually thought of as an uncontrolled sexual. What did I write? Uncontrolled sexual wants. However, the uh, the word was originally a general term for desire. Um, just as a bit of a sort of prelude before this, uh, on, on this song, Angel, uh, so he sticks with the you know, sexual ideal of the word. Uh, this is where he starts to use outside singers, something which he'd actually done previously. Uh, you already mentioned Blaze of Glory, so on Down to London, uh, there's um, there's uh, the female singer, I can't remember who it, who it actually is. Oh, yeah, is. She, she gives a great performance on that song. Yeah, I, I can't remember either, but she, yeah, I like it. She's fantastic. Yeah. And actually, come to think of it, also on Blaze of Glory, that song that I mentioned before, Sentimental Thing, he uses mm. um, an operatic singer, a very possibly Dawn Upshaw, who he uses on on uh, this one. So he's not afraid to bring in the right voice. You know, I'm, like, I salute him. I salute him. He, he just, if he thinks, right, well, he doesn't sort of say, this is my song, I'm going to do it justice. He thinks, no, someone else's voice will do this better than mm. I will. Um, the right voice for my work of art. So I I do have that respect for him. And um, also on uh, on live performances of Different for Girls, he's, uh, I, I think in like from the 90s onwards, he started to do it as a conversation between himself mm. and... Uh, like a female backup singer or, or um, is uh, he, he, this one woman um, I've forgotten her name she's I think recently passed away unfortunately but I saw them in Melbourne back in the early 90s and he would uh, he would sing part of it and then we, we, when he'd sing she said and then she'd be doing I don't believe it etc yeah. etc um so, it's, it's, it's probably worth just pointing out, I don't know if you're aware of this, Morris, but there is a, a compilation album called Different for Girls, in which it is all Joe Jackson songs covered by women artists and female-fronted bands. Wow, I did not know that. I'd yeah, love yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, my, my dad buying it quite a while ago, and um, I'm just looking at a track list now, and the song, Is She Really Going Out of Them, Look Sharp, It's Different for Girls, Stepping Out, Breaking Us Into, Hometown, Take It Like a Man, and yeah, and the album cover's fantastic as well. The album cover's like an old sort of... Um, 1950s three young girls not their Sunday best dresses on a black and white stage um, definitely worth checking out for listeners as well I'm, I'm definitely going to check that one down that, that yeah. sounds fantastic there's going to be even if I don't care for every cover there's going to be some gems on that there's yeah of course yeah yeah um, so anyway so getting back to this song uh, the um, the actual CD credits list uh, for this song Angel uh, they, they list Joe as the soul in torment Suzanne Vega as the fallen angel not the devil mm-hmm. And Dawn Upshaw as the angel, and you've already gone and sort of alluded to that this song is sung with the the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other, or as they would have it, the fallen angel on the other shoulder, sort of like in those Warner Brothers cartoons. Um, yes, yes. It, so it seems to me that you know the soul in torment, which only ever sings the one word angel throughout the songs, is so I'm guessing he's a priest or someone who's lived his life. Uh, under you know the reli- the religious definition of women as the Madonna or the whore, uh, I'm not making a theological discussion. This is not the place for it. But I find the idea that he'd follow that concept uh, a fascinating approach in this song. Yes. Um, the Vega fallen angel would be, I imagine, you know, the theological in the theological definition. She sings her part in a way that creates a form of hell for uh, for the soul, being both dismissive of him and promoting sexual desire. She claims he is unlikely to have fulfilled. Um, the Upshaw Angel is an operatic soprano singing her portion in Latin, 
apparently based on Ave Gloriosa by a French theologian called Philip the Chancellor. Uh, this angel on the tormented soul's shoulder is asking the Virgin Mother to cleanse the soul of his torment and save him from destruction. Uh, and no, I don't speak Latin. Uh, Joe has very thoughtfully provided the translation in the CD booklet. Just leaving aside for a moment any thoughts on the music itself, I like the circular nature of the song. The real cycle of any inner torment keeps turning, and you know, so it is here. There won't be a resolution for this guy. He may actively pursue abstinence, but he's always feeling plagued by thoughts of sexual desire, or he may give in to lust and feel guilty. Uh, the song starts with uh, Vega, goes to Upshaw, another verse by Vega, uh, another verse by Upshaw, and then, of course, Suzanne Vega gets the last word as the song fades out. But certainly like the previous song, it it's very circular in nature. It spirals down. He's never going to be at peace with himself. He's either going to fulfill his sexual desire and feel guilty, or he's not going to give in to it, and he's going to feel randy as hell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And just for me, really, this song, again, is... I was about to say weights then, just out of habit, is, uh, Joe, <laughs> is, uh, is, is Joe, um, perfectly exemplifying that lusty kind of, you know, slightly kind of just the depravity more than the kind of gratification, like the, the sense of dwelling within the kind of, you know, uh, the shame, I suppose, to a certain extent as well. And, and like you said, the voices, the structure, all of this song just comes together in a, in a really great package. And whilst it's not necessarily my favorite song, I, I maybe think it suffers from being a little long, but I think that's maybe the wrong criticism to make on an album like this, really, where it's kind of about the kind of experimental, you know, symphonic arm reaches, as it were, you know. Um, but this is, this is a great track as well. And this is just, um, a wonderful showing of, of Joe's ability to conjure numerous emotions on it, on his palette, you know, which is, a great, a great talent of his. Actually, I, look, I will sort of interject at that point to say that I don't think that this song goes on too long. It is a long song, but I don't think it ever outstays its welcome. I don't think he mm-hmm. could have sort of, he, he couldn't have shortened the verses and he couldn't yeah. have made do with only one verse and one um, operatic yeah. sequence. I, I think he does what he needs to do. Certainly if he'd extended it by another verse, then possibly, but I think he says and does everything uh, with the help of Dawn Upshaw and Suzanne Vega, uh, that he needs to do. And also, I mean, like, you know, full credit should be given to all the musicians on this tune. But, um, in particular, I want to single out, uh, a regular contributor t- across his albums is, uh, Suhajopoulos, who, uh, is his, uh, percussionist from night and day, but has, you know, propped up. I mean, she's, I, I not as regular as, uh, as Graham Maybe, who's you know been his, and I think possibly Graham Maybe is one of the few regulars who makes no appearance on this album whatsoever. Oh, interesting. But uh, Sue Hedjopoulos, she's been um, in and out of his uh, album life, uh, you know, across his entire career, and she plays on this song. And I, I think I saw her on the uh, what was it? Well, a couple of tours actually, but the one that stands out the most in my mind was the Night Music tour, and she was there, there was no drum kit. She was the percussionist, and to his credit, Joe let her be front and centre as the uh, audience favourite, even over him. Uh, she was mm. the last one to leave the stage. The audience went nuts. <laughs> that that woman is a genius percussionist, and she's always playing the right thing. She never overplays. She can play fancy, but she she does fancy when it's required. Uh, but 
she lets the song dictate what it is that she's going to do and she's marvelous and you, it's it's nice the contrast between the electronic percussion on this song and uh, her natural percussion and that's actually probably just a general question i should ask you i mean we can sort of get into it in specific songs tom but do you feel that the mixture of electronics and classical instrumentation we're talking about like string section we're not talking about a full orchestra here but you know just a, a string mm. section do you think by and large uh, that it works the the mix on this album yes yes i do i i think that it's kind of if you were to say there are strings of electronics it would maybe cause a lot of people to wince um because those two things are uneasy bedfellows as it were for the most part they're kind of diametrically opposite in so many ways but joe as well as being a fantastic lyricist and composer he's just a great songwriter he knows how to meld elements together and create something that's worthwhile listening to and not just there as a kind of show-offy pretentious thing as we we're discussing earlier like everything works here you know and and it adds to the whole sonic appealist album whilst all these songs are different and all the sins inform him to go in different directions there is a musical cohesiveness to the entirety of the thing yes that i think is very pleasing mm, mm. all right so let's um go on to uh, the next sin uh, because uh, if i talk too long about lust i think i'll have to go have a cold shower uh, yes <laughs> and we'll um let's talk a little bit about the next song is called tuzla and this song is about uh, greed or avarice Let's get to definitions. Uh, avarice, extreme greed for wealth or material gain. Can't get much simpler than that, I think. Um, the song Tuzla, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, is referring to the aftermath of the massacre of civilians that took place in uh, the city in Bosnia during the Bosnian War in the 90s. Uh, artillery projectiles were fired at the city over a three-day period in May 1995. Uh, killing 71 and wounding 240 civilians. Uh, the shelling took place by the uh, Bosnian Serb army. The commanding officer, and I hope I'm getting this name pronounced right, uh, Novak Dukic, uh, was arrested in 2007 and in 2009 was indicted on war crimes for that massacre. Now, this song here is not about that massacre, no. but like in the aftermath of war, there's a lot of there's obvious a lot of essentials a lot of things that people need 
basic human essentials, you know, food, shelter, running water, somewhere to stay. And this song is about people on the black market trying to get those essentials. And I feel that the approach on this sin is an interesting one because to me, the greed in a way is taking place out of frame of the song. It's the audio equivalent of seeing something happen off screen in a movie. Certainly, war will bring out the worst in mankind. And just as an aside, I should say that a recent viewing of a film that I saw called uh, Come and See, uh, set in uh, Belarusia in uh, World War II, showed absolutely the worst of uh, mankind during wartime. Uh, but anyway, so this song is sung with different sections from different perspectives. Uh, the Joe Jackson voice, uh, listed as the voices of cynicism and greed, sings through, uh, we've already gone and said it, like a walkie-talkie as he observes a small acts. The question is, are they acts of greed or desperation? Um, we, we, is it a guy making cigarettes using dried tea instead of tobacco that he's going to sell? Uh, another one is selling beer to the Serbs and then prepared to kill them in the afternoon. Uh, and then there's a woman who sleeps with uh, a Chechen soldier for yeah, a loaf of Chet bread, bad, yeah. but um, but is also possibly uh, she's prepared to kill him. So, uh, I mean, apart from you know, uh, possibly you know, the second tale, uh, the question is: Are these acts of greed, or are they acts of survival? Why I suggested the greed was taking place off camera as such was because the Bosnian war was uh, a territorial conflict. The big picture of war results in smaller behavioral conflicts with one's own conscience. Being overly simplistic about this, uh, treating your fellow men poorly while taking care of oneself is woeful. But if it's for survival rather than capital grain, is it greed? I'm not sure either way, and smart effects and me have surely wrestled with that idea. It's disgusting that you know when war is used purely for profit at someone else's expense in peacetime. Is the behaviour here purely about greed? Yeah, it's it, it's an interesting paradox. I, I completely agree, and it, it just shows Joe's inventiveness to not just do a song similar to Lust, which is just about lust. He's kind of putting greed into a kind of perspective here and making you question it yourself and, and kind of tugging you along. And his delivery, his vocal delivery here is perfect for that emotional resonance because it's he's very much the, you know, the voyeur, the, the, the Gene Hackman conversation kind of character, you know. And I love how the word look is used constantly. Look, look at that little clown. Look at the guy selling beer. Yes. Look through that window. Look at your sister here. He's constantly nudging the listener. He's constantly on our shoulder. He is the devil, as it were, of, of you know, of this world. He or the angel. He's just pushing us into this world. And the lyrical detail is wonderful here. It's not necessarily that he kind of goes on any extravagant excursions but it's just the constant building the accumulation of, of, of little things a bar of soap a week of news a plastic bag you know right. and he's talking about the, the schoolhouse burning down and just these little short stories that, that you were speaking about the three kind of um, the moralities of war thrown into question those three moments paired with two hand grenades three cigarettes a stick of gum you know this world is reduced to nothing more than physical objects well I like how he's gone and sort of tried to make uh, an equivalence between these things As, um, he gets the three singers they sing a slice of ham equals a long goodbye equals three mm. days of peace a stick of gum equals some wood for the fire equals two table legs so yeah 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 
basically if you're trying to get these things you know just for personal survival the means by which you get it may be reprehensible and the means that you're providing it with are also possibly reprehensible but it's, it's I'm still sort of wondering you know, is this greed in the traditional sense if I'm prepared to do what I need to do to get that thing uh, if it's at someone else's expense that's, that's certainly uh, a moral conundrum and it's certainly something that you've got to be playing with and you've got to live with yourself afterwards but mm. is it is it greed is self survival greed it, it can be once again if you're not considering someone else's welfare you can do some pretty horrible things but i don't know is that that maybe is a definition of greed i'm not sure mm, mm. and i think musically as well the, the song doesn't necessarily exemplify greed you could maybe have a greedy track i could maybe imagine how joe would approach that but it's more at first um, when you listen to this song it feels very much a continuation of themes you have that serene floating female voice a slightly lumbering and odd modular movement of chords that pauses for a brief second you get a gas and it just goes in there Ding, 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 ding. that slow yes. heartbeat of that bass the plink of strings that really squeaky guitar that sounds like it's in the back like very mark robot-esque you know um it sounds like it's the back of a radio it sounds very counterfeit and, and you know handmade there's there's musically this is probably my favorite track i think i I, okay. I love the atmosphere and i love the kind of the piano chords that come behind joe when he's singing and they feel like they're almost like slightly off key slightly left of center it's, it's delicious really and um joe is always talking about i got what you you know i got what you want you got what i need this is i say the sense of trade and I, those choruses that build the details of kind of bartering system is just it's delightful i mean i just the the imagination here is 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 excellent and i think something that links this to uh to the song that we discussed before about lust is i think he's using a similar device with uh, maybe you even sort of alluded to this tom uh about the the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the mm. or at least your, your, or at least maybe not so much the angel and the devil but two sides of your conscience and dawn up yes. your operatic vocals uh definitely that side of you that's saying really you can do better than this but the the joe jackson thing oh look at what he's gonna do there look at that look at that. yeah that's, yeah that's that's also the voice of conscience but it's sort of saying that this is the depths to which humanity can get but the the dawn upshore operatic vocals are these are the this is what you can aspire to i know times are shit but really you can make your way through this and without having to sort of degrade yourself to to the lowest possible point um so i i don't know I'm, I'm not sure if there are people out there who are listening to this who are sort of saying that uh i'm condoning uh any any of that behavior i'm not i'm just purely sort of asking the question whether this is greed in the traditional sense as we know it you know, survival survival without morality is you know, it can be a horrible thing, but I've never had to live through wartime, and you know, no. I, I hope I never do. Uh, but it's it's just does immoral behaviour in wartime does it count as as greed, or at least at least what they're describing in this song doesn't count mm. as as avarice? I'm I'm not sure, but uh, he, he certainly raises some interesting questions in the structure of that. Yeah, totally. There is um. I, I think lyrically as well this is a real standout um, there is just a lot of incredible detail here and maybe if you weren't even aware of Tuzla 
um, which I wasn't. Originally, I assumed naively because I don't know much about classical music. I thought Tuzzler was a classical music term. Okay. I thought that, that, that was, you know, like a fugue or because, because I mean, there is um, the, the passat, I'm going to say it terribly off my memory, so I'll just look at my Pas- notes. Passacalia. Um, Passacalia, that is, you know, that, 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 that is a musical thing, well, which we'll, we'll get it, on to next. It, Italian, Italian is the, uh, the language of classical terminology. Of course. So, so, um, all right. So, well, I, I guess that's probably a good segue, isn't it? Uh, yes. Yeah. Perfect. Let, let's let's go to the next song, uh, and uh, it's the fifth song on the old man, the fourth of the sins. This is uh, pas- uh, is called Passacalia, a bud and a slice, and it describes the sin of sloth. Give me a bud and a slice. Leave me alone if I want your advice. I'll ask you. Tell me caviar's nice, but I wouldn't know. So what's it to you? Who needs your hairs and your microbes? So um, similar to how Fugue One is, Fugue, the title is Fugue One uh, forward slash more is more. So we get our song title and we get our kind of musical mode. Um, Joe really smartly has matched modes to emotions here. So in the Fugue, we discussed before, Fugue is this self-repeating thing, this motif that keeps building and building and building, which makes perfect sense in gluttony, that sense of constantly devouring itself if they can't get anything else, you know. And this passive, pass, pass, my, my, I think my, the G, my think naivety the is, is shining through. I think the G yeah. is silent. Um, so I, uh, I did a little bit of research on what this was because I've, I've never heard the term before. Uh, and it is, uh, I quote, a composition similar to a chacon, uh, typically in slow triple time with variations over a ground bass. And that sounds perfect for a sloth song, really. Not only is it slow, but it's kind of, you know, based around this lower note, based around this kind of the, the, the lumbering nature, really. And I think um, the guy, Brad Roberts, right, yep. who I... The crash, crash test crash dummies. Crash test dummies, yeah. Who I only know for that one song. That mm, song. Yeah, yeah, we all do. Um, yeah, they're, exactly. They actually, like, they actually weren't a bad band. I had one of their albums um, right. back okay. in the 90s. They're, they're not too bad. They're not too bad. Mm-hmm. But his his voice here is um, absolutely fantastic. Like I quite like Joe. And it was weird to... I was listening to this album um, last week. I, I, I walked down to the local cinema and I was going to go see uh, the new Tarantino. I was uh, going to go see... Yeah, I was going to go see Hateful Eight, and it was weird in my headphones, just as I was pulling up to the Odeon, I heard Joe talking about the new Tarantino, obviously he's speaking about uh, <laughs> Reservoir Dogs, but it was this odd kind of moment in time where it's like, when he was doing this, this was coming out, but now uh, Tarantino's obviously on his ape film, but um, yeah, I, I, I think again, as you say, throughout this album, Joe is, is, is you know, respectfully bowing to more superior singers for the moment, and... Um, 
Brad Roberts is, is fantastic in this. Oh, movie. he's absolutely perfect for this. Mm. I, I just sort of want to cover a little bit more based on what your definition sure. was. So I'd read something about uh, Pasacalia being uh, uh, continuous variations over a base pattern. And it, apparently by the 1800s, it had been redefined as a series of variations over an ostinato pattern. And I thought, what the hell is that? So a mm. search produced an answer that made good sense in the context of this song. Um, a, a motif or phrase that persistently repeats in the same musical voice. And that sort of screen Bolero, Ravel's Bolero to me. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'd, I'd be interested in knowing... So this song, which is unusual, you know, coming from a British songwriter, but he obviously was living in America and he wanted to... Maybe he was making a, a, a statement on the American way of life. So it seemed like it's iconic to call it a bud and a slice. Uh, mm-hmm. In Australia, we'd have probably called it a VB and a pie. So I'm wondering, in, in Britain, what would you have called this? Um, a pint. <laughs> just, I, I guess just a pint. I mean, we don't really have slices here, to be honest. And so so, what we, so we, you might say like a, a, a pint and a serving of fish and chips or something. Yes, if you want to be horribly <laughs> stereotypical. Then, well, then and, you, and, then, but that, that title is very stereotypical. That's true. That's true. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, I think that's spot on, really. I, 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 yeah, that, they're a great combination, no doubt. I've got to say, we, we were speaking before about uh, Joe's performance of this whole album, this whole song cycle on the program sessions at West 54th. And I can't recommend that show enough. Not just the Joe Jackson episode, but the whole show in general. They always had great... Uh, great artists they had you know the chance to sort of perform in front of an audience and just stretch out rather than do one song or or you know just have a superficial chat um but anyway so when it comes to doing this song he says i'd like to introduce from the town of winnipeg brad roberts of the crash test dummies and he's going to sing a song about the sin of sloth if he can be bothered Yes. <laughs> oh, that made me laugh so much. And like, and just just to touch back on the uh, stereotypes as well, I love the way Joe sings bloody brilliant. Yes, that's a very British thing, isn't it? Yes, great, great affectation there, Joe. Um, you know, and the, the, there is that, I mean, arguably the song is about sloth, but you could almost p- p- pass it to ignorance as well. Uh, which right. I know isn't one of the seven deadly sins, but that's certainly a sin in and of itself and a, and a negative thing and something that could deserve a song. And, you know, Brad Roberts in this song is, is delivering it and is kind of, I mean, again, like I say, I'm only going from that one crash test dummies on song. I'm guessing that's his main vocal delivery, that slow meandering, almost moving like need. Like, you know, there's, there's something quite like you're just waiting to catch up. Like you can't believe how slow this guy's singing, but it's in time and like well, it's still well, very melodic and enjoyable. Let me tell you, uh, Brad Roberts is never going to be able to do a cover version of Joe's song, Got the Time. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> um, but uh, let's, let's have a quick definition of, uh, of sloth. So once mm-hmm. again, you know, my uh, Wikipedia uh, definition, I think, was defined uh, within Catholicism as spiritual or emotional apathy and being physically and emotionally inactive. Uh, and I thought, well, why do they consider that a sin? And then they, the quote came up, Satan finds mischief for idle hands to do. Yes. So I thought, all right, okay, so fine. Like, why the church defined that it's, as, it's, as a yeah, sin? Yeah, it's, al- it's almost like religion wanted them people to work. I mean, what, what a coincidence, right? Yes, it's crazy. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so the whole song is done as... I don't know, well, is it, is it really, is it 6-8 time or is it 3-4 time? Would you say it's a waltz or is it 6-8? I mean, they, I, 
It feels waltzy to me, but yeah. I mean, my, my, you, as a, I know you're a drummer, so I'll trust your rhythmic instincts over mine. <laughs> well, I mean, no, look, there's, there's no doubt that it's either three, four, or six, eight, but mm. um, I often get confused between the two, uh, which, you know, shame on me. Um, <laughs> now, I frequently said that a waltz is the saddest of all time signatures, but here, maybe a case could be made, it's the laziest of all time signatures. Yes. Uh, we, we hear the bass pattern, uh, the other instruments build up, bass and the lower piano notes playing really lethargically uh the bassoon played by someone called judy leclerc um, mm. who apparently is uh, the principal bassoonist for the new york philharmonic um, she takes up the melody that brad roberts eventually takes up when he arouses from his stupor and i don't think he starts singing until about three minutes into the song no no he uh, doesn't there is the first the first bracket of the song as it were is just a, as you say, a brilliant instrumental of a gorgeous bassoon like i'm not really a bassoon aficionado like i can't say i've heard it too much um in tracks but i think here it is just wonderful and it's kind of the perfect personification of him as a singer as well really they, they share the same timbre well i i don't know um whether you grew up listening to uh, peter and the wolf by prokofiev as a child but I hear the bassoon, and I always think of the grandfather from uh, uh, from that work. Uh, w- w- did you ever listen to that, Tom? I didn't know. I mean, I, I have to be honest. Uh, classical music is is not my bag at all. I, ah, I, really okay. near, it, it, I know I know near to nothing about it. Okay, look, I, I grew up un- until I was ten. I never listened to a pop record. It was just about all classical. Oh wow, that, that's very lucky. Yeah, that's a great basis, you know. But uh, you know, Peter and the Wolf. I, I thought was even the sort of um, piece that. Maybe you know non-classical uh, people sort of would have heard, or kids would have heard at some stage, you know, even if it had been forced down their throat. But certainly, I, 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 they use different members of the orchestra or different instruments of the orchestra to represent the different characters in the story. And I think of the bassoon, I think of the grandfather, and once again, it was a very lumbering sort of uh, yes. musical representation there. So it works perfectly here. I mean, maybe as a, a bad reputation, I don't know. Um, so the main character in this song is presumably, uh, well, we'll say North American because he's Canadian. Um, yes. Uh, and uh, North American trailer trash. Uh, he blames a, a class distinction for his lack of motivation. He sings, give me a button, a slice, and leave me alone. If I want your advice, I'll ask you. They tell me caviar's nice, but I wouldn't know. So what's it to, new, what, what's it to you? Who needs your heirs? And your micro brew. Um, mm. While while the word yuppie was still a thing, I imagine the word micro brew was an accusation of pretentiousness and obsession with materialism. Uh, and, and so you've already gone and mentioned ignorance. So there's that. Mm. That's where it first comes in. Um, either way, we get this song sung from the perspective of uh, you know, from two beer drinking. Uh, I have an opinion about everything on the planet type of guy or maybe one with two voices because we get Joe Jackson. I'm not sure if he's the same character who's uh, just basically uh, come in uh, with with a little bit more enthusiasm or whether he's you know like his drinking buddy. But um, he certainly, because the song picks up a, a, yes. a little, a little bit more. Um, he becomes a little bit more animated. So it's once again him saying, "Right, well, I have an opinion on this." And you know, fuck what you define as culture. I've seen the new Tarantino film. You know, lighten up. It, it, yeah, yeah. It, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't 
th- there is no undercurrent to this. It's just a film. Lighten up. Who cares if he took the blowtorch to his balls? Big deal. Um, yeah, and uh, he speaks about um, it, it's great as well. Again, to, to bring in the Britishness, he mentions the Beano. I don't know if that's known in Australia. Uh, look, I, I, yes, I do know of it. I remember when I was yeah. a kid, I read a lot of British comics. It was like with ah. uh, before your time, I guess. There's yes. what we call the Battle Picture Weekly, uh, right? And a whole lot of these uh, uh, really dreadful. Uh, war, wartime picture weekly comics and they'd have all these characters like major easy and they'd all be like four four pictures and all the germans would ever say is mein gott and gott in himmel as major yes. easy would would wipe them out but uh yeah we but yes the the beano we did not i mean I, it wasn't a big thing here like it was in england no. but we they were available here so yes i did mm-hmm. know about mm-hmm. them yeah mm-hmm. The, yeah, I, I, I'd be interested to know whether any American listeners knew about the Beano. Yeah, I guess I guess Dennis the Menace is probably the most popular character to come out of the right, Beano. Right. Um, but but even he, I guess, is is much more of a British thing. And as of now, he is a redundant culture for any cho- uh, figure for any children in this country. No one knows who he is anymore. <laughs> so it's kind of sad, really. I remember him, but no one really does. It's great to see Beano rhyming with Tarantino. Um, that, that, that's just a really nice kind of melding there, like because if you if you look at the lyrics on the page, that is the A to the B rhyme. That that is how he's structuring the verses, and um, you know, part of it is as similar to Tesla, where it's kind of like there's the paradox of kind of uh, is it greed or is it self sufficiency? Is it is it survival? Like it is culture to this person. Like maybe it's not culture to us. But, you know, this is what he's got. And why, why should we look down on this? This is someone who enjoyed the film, you know, knows of other things, has a daughter. You know, this is it's an adult who's raising someone else to give his views to this person. It just, it, it begs a lot of interesting questions. And Joe, again, is not really the star here. As we said before, um, Brad just delivers that beautiful, almost, I don't want to call it Southern, but it's definitely got a drawl to it it's definitely yes. you know it's not kind of like a sort of wisecracking like kind of i don't know um you know east coast kind of guy like it's definitely got a more of a southern nature to it and um we also have moments of beauty in this song as well uh, yes, it makes I, us- I think i think certainly the um the 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 coda of the album the last yeah. minute as it fades out and um in a way i i think we're, we're not quite there yet but when we discuss the sin of anger i think what i love about how the album works as an overall sort of thing each song perfectly follows into the next one but i think the segue between sloth and anger musically works perfectly you get this Mm. you get this um relaxing sort of uh exit out of the song this relaxing coda and then you're going to be hit over the head with mm. with anger in a moment, uh, we'll we'll talk about that. I just I love the segue between that. I love listening to the album. That's this is not one of those albums where you're going to play a song uh, or one or two songs. You have to listen to it in its entirety. No. And I love how anger follows on from sloth. Not necessarily, you know, from subject matter wise, because no. I don't care about the order. But musically, I think it's a brilliant lead on. Yes. Yes, that is true. Actually, I don't know if there is an agreed order to the seven deadly sins, or if they just are seven deadly sins. I don't, you know what I mean. In the same way that the Ten Commandments right, seem right. to have some sort of order, because what's mentioned in Commandment Four might be kind of repeated in Commandment Ten or whatever. But yeah, um, write this song um, with the, the, the drummer song, the anger song. You well, know, well, um, do, we, do we want to get to that now? Oh, uh, I suppose. I mean, do you have anything more to say? No, I, I, think, the, I think I think I finished. I think. I, I, look, I'm too lazy to have thought of anything more to think to say about. <laughs> 
Of so, um, so if, yeah. if you're ready, yeah, well, let's let's uh, go on to um, yeah. Uh, the, it's called Right, and it talks about the sin of wrath. memories of this song actually uh I, I listened to this album i said mentioned when i was quite young and then i listened to joe a lot uh, through my teens and you know consistently really but not really this album so much but i do distinctly remember i went on holiday maybe i was like 19 or my family sort of my brother my sister and my mom my dad and we're driving back from heathrow airport we lived in we live, well we live in birmingham so that's about two hours two and a half hours from there and um, we're driving back quite late at night we're all kind of tired but couldn't sleep you know, that kind of sort of post-playing, you can't quite nod off. It's in a car as well, packed with luggage. And my dad's iPad was on shuffle, and it was he, he mostly is quite soft, kind of new wavy, kind of, you know, folky stuff. And he had the music quite loud, you know, because he just wanted to keep himself alert. And I remember this song came on, and it just suddenly it was like, <laughs> fuck this bullshit spit. And I remember my mom immediately turned it off. Like, she just reached for it. She was like, what is this? She couldn't, you know, she was like, what the hell is this? Because it is like just this kind of... Like, you know, even for Joe Jackson songs, this is right out there with that aggression. Like, I mean, if you've not heard this song before, definitely seek this out. One of the annoying things I found out about Heaven and Hell, by the way, and I have no idea why, it is one of the only Joe Jackson albums that isn't on Spotify. Oh, really? Um, I, I have no clue why. Maybe it was because it was done under Sony classical imprint rather than his normal imprint. I don't know if his other classical albums are on there, but I listen to most of my music on Spotify. I do buy music quite regularly, but most of my music is on Spotify, so I had to get this CD from home. Uh, I sent you an image quite a while ago. Um, but, uh, yeah, so... Um, it just wasn't there but yeah anyway I, I, I just the intro of this song the whole of this song I think is fantastic but I think the intro is just um, Joe is most juvenile in the best possible way well okay so let's refer to um, an interview that appeared as like a, a video extra on the CD but you discovered it as well on YouTube which turned out to yes. be a rather handy thing uh, and Joe describes this song well Okay, well, first of all, let's talk about the definition. I mean, it seems like this is fairly obvious, but uh, on the Wikipedia page for The Seven Deadly Sins, it describes wrath as uh, inordinate and uncontrolled feelings of hatred and anger. I, I thought that was a rather poor definition. Hatred doesn't have to come into it. So another more mm. general definition from the dictionary.com is a strong feeling of annoyance, displeasure, or hostility. So, okay, I can work with that. So... Joe had gone and said in this interview that sort of was like, I guess, electronic press kit for the album. He said that to him, anger was a fairly childish emotion. So he was going to play it up as a fairly childish song in a way. And mm. so we, we start off the song and the, you don't get this, unfortunately, in the version that you see on uh, Sessions of West 54. But on the album, you start off hearing... Joe playing 
the melodic motif that we get later on in the song on an upright, an out-of-tune upright tack piano. And like he's trying to play this song and unsuccessfully, and then at the end he says, damn, because he's not getting it right. And then we get this oral assault from two drummers. And it must be said that this is probably the only, I guess in the conventional sense, rock song on the yes. album. And he's using uh, two drummers. I just want to talk about a little bit... Uh, the first, the first uh, drummer is uh, Dan Hickey, who you hear on the left channel. And Dan had been uh, with him on a couple of tours and had played on his Laughter and Lust album. And I got, yeah, I got to see him here in Melbourne, I think, in 1992. And the drummer on the right is um, an incredible player, who, uh, a guy called Kenny Aronoff, and he's on the right channel. And he's most known for his work with Mellencamp, uh, John Cougar Mellencamp, but he's mm. also played for John Fogarty, uh, my hero Richard Thompson uh, and Marshall Crenshaw and really a shitload of others who wanted a drummer yes. who was not afraid to hit the skins hard and like on this song it's like Joe said I'm hiring you because you're a hard man hard hitter just do what you do and mm-hmm. uh, he, he takes that brief and, and he <laughs> runs with it um, so basically yeah, as, as I started saying uh, Joe says on that electronic press kit that you know, anger is a childish emotion. So the anger of the character is not that of a righteous rage. We're not talking about someone who is justifiably mad because he's been wronged or someone's gone and done something inconsiderate. It's a childish reaction to uh, whatever it is that displeases him in this case, not being able to play his scales right. And I think the, the lyrics of the song, he's singing from the uh, perspective. It could basically be... Uh, Pink in Pink Floyd's The Wall. He's this character is a. Uh, it, it sounds to me like he's a, a musician who doesn't have the 100 blue M and M's in his uh, in his brandy glass backstage mm. when when the gig is finished. And uh, you know he's going through. And basically, Aronoff and Hickey are his surrogate temper tandem, temper tantrums. Just so like he, he's used Dawn Upshaw as his angelic voice. Uh, in you know, those couple of previous songs. So Aronoff and Hickey are the drum, his drumming voices, uh, the voices mm. of anger. And, uh, you know, the song is launched with, uh, you know, him screaming out one syllable curses. You've got to say, fuck this, fuck this bullshit. And probably it's too late yeah. to say that this episode comes with a, a language warning. But, uh, yes. but we can warn you that this, this album, really, it, this is the one moment. But with a song like Anger, it's it, really, he had to go down the obvious path. But for all of that, musically, it's still absolutely brilliant. But even there, um, as I think uh, one of our correspondents went and mentioned, in, he, he still does do some things with it. And I see this song as, first there's the childish anger. And mm. then we get that moment where he's playing the melody on the piano uh, and he's, sing- he's singing on top of it. And he, he's, it's more like a, a different form of anger. First there's the childish anger, then there's the... Um, the anger that sort of makes you afraid. It's it, it, like you think that this guy is about to explode, but mm. you don't know when. It's more like that anger that seeds underneath the surface. And then he does this bit, which I'm not sure, like in the scheme of things, why he did it, but I like it, where uh, he hears a guy, and he mentions this, I think, in the interview, that he recorded with a with a ghetto blaster, uh, a busker, playing on some old buckets in the middle of Times Square in uh, yes. New York City. 
Jared Crawford, I believe yes. his name was. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's then he comes back to the the anger under the surface before finishing off with the anger, the, the explosive anger. So that underneath the surface, it's it, it sort of come full circle once again. The best way to uh, create, um, you know, powerful emotional moments in songs is through juxtaposition. And I love that with the raw anger that we start with, um, you know, the kind of monosyllabic. And it's great by the way that Joe's saying, like, you know, he, he, he goes from sort of, fuck this bullshit, which is like, okay, yeah, of course, that's what he's going to shout. But he also shouts, rock star dumb luck which I really like, and um, Damn Finn Shoelace. So it's just kind of almost like the absurdity of anger as well. It's not like he's got real rallying calls here. And I love the fact that we go from the monosyllabic ranting into that really kind of smooth 90s pop. And it's very 90s pop in the sense that he sings the melody and then the melody is taken up by the synths. Then they kind of just repeat the vocal which, thing. Which and it's seems, great. seems to me more of an 80s thing, really, to be honest. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mate, sorry. Yeah. I think that's kind of what I'm going for. That kind yeah, of yeah, thing. Sure, sure. And, um, uh, and, and, and it's all, great as well. I was just going to sort of point out that one one more thing that um, in that uh, bit where he's doing the seething under the surface, mm. be very frightened because I'm going to explode type of anger. In those bits, we're playing playing the scales, playing uh, up and down scales. Yes. I don't know if he's returning to that scalier thing when the the opening. I got a right to bite the hand that feeds the greed that pay. Is he literally speaking about his literal hand playing the scales and how he's angry at his hand? Like, I mean, there's a play on biting the hand that feeds, of course. Oh, like, you know, no, I I, yeah, I think that's possibly reading it a bit too much. I mean, that's right. see, that's where I sort of felt like his character in this song was the guy waiting backstage for mm. um the writer to be specifically like he wanted it. He wanted a, right. he wanted a, a, a groupie with blonde hair and he wanted, mm. uh, he wanted this label. Uh, he wanted uh, this brand of whiskey provided for him. And he wanted 2000 exactly blue M and M's provided mm. in a brandy glass. And yes, Van Halen. I, I'm yeah, stealing yeah. that from uh, uh, Wayne's, the Wayne's world two story. Yes. And it's just, it's just great as well that it goes from that anger into that really nice fuzzy rolling bass, that do 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 There's that sense of reparation of release, you know, the sense of momentum as well. It's not just going from anger to softness. It's going from anger to a more kind of punky, just that kind of basic root notes and how you can, you know, when you find this when you practice with a band when you're a young kid, oh my God, if I just play a couple of notes with a drum sound, it kind of sounds great. Like, yeah. it, you know, it's not necessarily a great song, but it just sounds fun. And and Joe's incorporation of that drummer is such a wild thing, really. And I, I read a great quote as well. There was a um, great Sony classical press release online, and um, he speaks about the two drummers you mentioned, Kenny Aronoff and Dan Hickey. He says they're, quote, they were like gladiators in the studio trying to outdo each other, and uh, which I think is brilliant. And he also speaks about um, the fact that Wright is the closest the album gets to out-and-out out rock and roll. He says, rock and roll has a limited emotional range, but it's really good at anger. Yes, I yes, I, I read uh, the same thing. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's spot on. It's spot on, really, yeah. Um. Look, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned about Hickey and uh, Aronoff trying to outdo each other, and yet they still do it within within parameters. It's not complete un- unadulterated chaos. It's it is chaos within borders. Uh, they mm. they start out at the same place. They end off where they have to. They still keep it as a backbone, and yet it, it's I, I guess a bit like Keith Moon. He sort of came in where he had to, ended off where he had to, and there was chaos within those borders. But um, you know, I absolutely love what they do 
And, uh, you know, basically, you know, being, being a drummer, I always sort of found that, that song really just completely my speed to turn up loud. Uh, I, I don't pretend for a moment that I ever, you know, had, had the skills of uh, either of those two guys, but it was fun to play along with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, it's just a wonderful release. You know, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of thinking on this album. As, as much as it's an enjoyable listen to put in the background, there's a lot of intelligent stuff going on here. And that's not to say this song is intelligent in its very own way. You know, the fact that the way it measures up the pop sensibilities with the madness of the song is absolutely brilliantly done. But there's just a great sense of, um, abandon to this track, especially in the section when we fold out into the street. Um, I think that's a really brave of Joe to incorporate that and just a really wild thing to do really. And, um, the fact that we come out of that and there's a howl and a scream and the music comes back in and there's that singular piano notes that wait in the wings as the crashes of chords come and just exert a whole greater pressure and sing. There's a, there's, there's, there's a twist and turn to this song. You know, it's, it's a song about anger, but it's not like when you listen to death metal or new metal or, you know what I mean? Where right. anger's so forefront and it's kind of just basic really like metal's running out of things to say you know it's just kind of like i love metal but i'm i'm more into sort of complex guitarists than the emotional stuff of it you know uh, so you were something of a prog guy then yeah i mean i guess the, the the stuff i like modern stuff is kind of more like um i think you know baroness or mastodon i know, um, I know mastodon yeah yeah mastodon are kind of more where it's it's very very heavy and it's very aggressive but like the guitar playing and ideas that they're putting forward are just incredible i think i think just just as a kind of offside blood mountain by mastodon is one of the best metal albums of the past decade it's 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 remarkable it's a great concert album as well about monsters which kind of sounds very silly and it is very silly <laughs> but it's very good as well um but yeah i i i write is just for me Memories of my mom turning down the soundtrack in the car is vivid, and that that's just a, makes that's a great memory. That's a great memory. Yeah, yeah. It's just because it's just if you encounter this song, it's so ridiculous what goes on, and it's really like as he says each thing. There's a just you know when you're a kid and you're in front of a piano, you don't have to play the piano, so you just smash your hands on the keys for fun, and that's what he's doing. And I, I should sort of mention one other lyric um, from the song, and it's during that section where we hear uh, the um, the guy in. Uh, in Times Square, and he sings, "A smack in the mouth is a kind of peace." Yes, and I, I love that. I, I love that sort of contrast between anger and what gives you relief. And you, you don't know whether he's, you know, singing about right. I'm, I'm going to give you a smack in the mouth, and it's going to provide me with my catharsis, or you punch me in the mouth, and really, I'm going to have all the anger. Uh, smacked out of me, but I just love that contrasting image there, um, and pretty much it sort of, maybe that's the point of him playing this this um, this piece in in uh, Times Square. It's, it's almost mm. like this this guy he's found his own piece, his own little island in real. I mean, like in New York City, which is which is a jungle. It's it's crazy, it's chaotic, but he's found his own little island of peace and. and Maybe there's that contrast. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading mm. too much mm. into it, but I no, just no, love no. That. I love I, that line there. I think I think I was reading too much of it with the feed the hand. I think yours <laughs> is uh, it's, it's entirely reasonable and adds to the adds to the impression of the song. Yeah, but um, this is another great number, really. I mean, it's just chatting about these songs makes me realise the amount of effort that's gone in, the amount of intelligence behind these songs is um, really inspiring. Yeah, for sure. All right, look, mm. we got uh, two more sins to cover, so yeah. um, let's uh, get on. Let's get on to the next song. Uh, mm. The next one is called "The Bridge," and this covers the sin of envy. Down there in the ashes. 
So the definition I came up with from the interwebs for envy was a feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or luck. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a slight problem with this definition, though I'm possibly wrong. Well, probably wrong. Uh, I I would remove the word resentful from this f- definition. I've always mm. thought that envy was about a dissatisfaction of one's own circumstances compared to someone else's, but without wishing them ill will. I yes. thought that that was reserved for jealousy. So uh, I'm not sure. You know, is there supposed it's to be... It's kind of a, a overture diff- interlude thing, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But, I, I mean, for me, being envious of someone was not... So I wouldn't take that away from you. I just wish I had it as well. Whereas jealousy yeah. means you bastard. Why do you have it? That should be for me. And yes. So yeah. that, that's why I have a bit of a problem with this definition. Yeah. And uh, Joe, j- j- just say quickly, Joe, uh, in the in the liner notes as it were online, does provide interesting uh, interpretation of this own song of his, which really helped me when I was listening. He says that the bridge exam this song, the bridge examines envy from the po- viewpoint not of the envier but the envied. Being yes. envied is horrible, explains Jackson, because there's nothing you can do about it. The other person broke the bridge on their side, as it were. Yeah, look, 100%. It's, you know, actually, I'd forgotten that he'd said that, but um, in re-listening to this uh, for the song, I actually did sort of come across that. Oh, yeah, this is something from the, pers- uh, from the perspective of the envied. But I'll tell you something else. I'm going to add something to that. I don't necessarily see it as necessarily just about the envied but the perceived envied. So mm. you've got. Uh, so the song is sung from. Uh, once again, it's uh, being sung by uh, by a woman. Uh, in this case, Jane Sibbery, rather than Joe himself doing it. And it's sung. It, she's a sister who is um, sort of. Uh, she's looking at her sister, saying, "You're the one who destroyed the bridge. Uh, I always wished you nothing but the best, but you're the one who broke the bridge." And I'm once again. I'm coming along with this saying that it's a song about perceived envy not necessarily complete envy she might have written it all wrong she might be so far into her own headspace and she might have misinterpreted something that her sister had gone and said as oh you just you're just jealous of me oh you envy everything i've always ever had and she might have sort of gone around like the jane sibbery character might have gone around through life as a complete nutter princess and mm. she might have just said, oh, you're just envious of everything that I've ever had or jealous or whatever, you know, however you want to define it. And that might not have been the case. And I like to think that whether he knows it or not, Joe's gone and, repl- uh, gone and deployed the unreliable narrator. You can't necessarily mm. take what they're singing as being the gospel truth. So, I mean, and if that is the case, I find it even all the more interesting. Yeah, I, I think I think there is definitely something in that in the narrator. I think maybe my problem with this song is it's a little Bette Midler to me. Maybe I, it, it's so a little, you say that like it's a bad thing, Tom. Uh, well, I mean, it's kind of a little trope on Down in the Hole. I know. Really like a, <laughs> don't, don't, for hours. Uh, uh, don't talk uh, to strangers. And I thought, oh, yeah. Uh, look, I, I, I got to I got to say that I mean, like Bette in her Divine Madness days was really really funny funny woman and the fact that she and tom were friends 
in those days, just based on her I'm stage act. I, I don't see it as a, an unsurprising thing, but um, no, no. I mean, I mean, I, what, what I want to say as well is, I defend that song uh, from Foreign Affairs on the podcast, and Sam hates that song, and I actually think that's quite a good song. Uh, there's, there's just there's, uh, like, like you're saying, the pure. It, it's like I'm just glad it exists. I'm just so happy that Tom did like a, a a number with another woman, you know, and it's quite charming in its own kind of way. Yes, um, but there are some genuine moments where they they sound out of tune. It's weird. Like I don't know how they didn't hear it on the record where them their their voices just meld like kind of like we we're talking about earlier about looping pedals. They just pick up anyway. But yeah, this is, I think this is maybe just for me the least interesting song on the album. I think the sin is interesting, and I think do, uh, doing envy as a song is definitely an interesting thing. And Joe rises to the challenge, and this isn't to say this isn't at the same quality as any of the tracks in the album, which is a very high quality indeed. But it's just not as exciting for me as a listener. I, suppose. I, I guess this is. This raises another question, I mean, because you've already gone and said that you think it's a, it's a good song. The question is, does it work as a song about envy? And I, I struggle with this sort of thinking about this, about whether it does. And ultimately, once again, because he's chosen to not go down the obvious road except for anger. And even there, he still made it an interesting song but really anger is anger uh, but uh, envy he sort of said well I'm not going to make an obvious song oh right I'm jealous of you I'm envious of you or you're envy he's gone down the unreliable narrator road and uh, I, I guess my evidence of that is that line uh, down there in the ashes there's gold and silver too dear sister I try to share with you and mm. uh, saying uh, down in the ashes is gold and silver too. It just sounds so patronising, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've gone and I'm now like living here in my ivory tower, and you're living on the working class side of town. And, but even in your little end of town, you know, in those in those ashes, I'm I'm sure that you know there's wonderful things that you can have too. And I just I, I find it just such a horribly patronising line. But I'm not using that as a criticism of Joe's writing. I'm using that as a criticism of his character. That's the character that he's built. Of course. And yet, it, it sort of tends to maybe go out of context with the music. The music, the, the, the melody on this is so beautiful, and it's almost like trying to sound conciliatory. And yet, to me, the lyric is anything but. It, yeah, just, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, what else is I going to say about this? Uh, oh, there's he employs. I don't know if you've sort of like noticed this across uh, Joe's entire catalog but he seems to have this thing when he's playing the piano on certain songs he has a thing about the notes in the upper register of the piano so like mm. on a, a song from the uh mike's murder album laundromat monday he um, when he plays that uh that little riff and he's playing that on the upper register of the piano and he does that here that three note motif it's like a call and response the latter part of the song as a call and response to what Jane Sibbery is is singing and he's done that on a ton of other songs of course I'm going to feel put on the spot I can't sort of recall anything apart from yeah, yeah, yeah. But, he ha- but he has done that on a, on a ton of songs he loves that upper register and I'd love to hear him I'd love to hear an interview where he sort of describes you know whether that's conscious or if he has a definite reason for that but I think it, it, it works really, really well. And look, I mean, I can see what you say. It's not necessarily amongst the most uh, interesting of songs on the album, but I think you know, Envy is not necessarily that type of sin. And, and I, I, think he's, I think possibly he's maybe giving the listener a break 
because you know he's he's already gone and done anger, and he's going to go into his final sin. So it's you know that that penultimate song on the album. I can't spill all my cookies here, uh, right, yes, because you know, we've got one more song to go. So I think the song does what it needs to do, and it, 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 for me, it is still a great song. Yeah, um, yeah, it's not taken anything away. I just think that uh, you know it's it, it just it, amongst such you know awesome tracks. It's just maybe not as much as a statement, but you know that right. that is what envy is. Envy is a far more subtle emotion, isn't it? It's far more deep seated. It's far more clandestine in its approach. Right, and I wonder, in a way, whether envy is the sin that we probably have the hardest amount of uh, control over. Even in a way, more than uh, anger or or lust, because you know we can sort of sense that anger in ourselves and. Mm-hmm. It, I'm not saying it's easy to control, but we can consciously sort of think, I'm going to make a concerted effort to, to stop. I know I have a filthy or foul temper. I'm going to do something to control that. And, you know, uh, lust, well, the guy there, he's trying to control it, not necessarily successfully, but you might find ways to control that. Uh, and greed is, you know, a character trait and all these other sorts of things. But I think envy is the one that you maybe are the least conscious of mm. of it, it, it creeping over you it just is it's just there uh, i mean look, I, I think it takes a fine human being to recognize it and to sort of consciously think i'm going to evict that out of my life uh, if in fact it is a sin really i don't know um, once again i think i think you know jealousy could be better defined as a sin where you sort of have bad feelings about someone else uh, having yes. something but you know just sort of saying oh they've got that i wish i had that too that's, mm-hmm. I don't know. Is is that a sin? Maybe, but I don't think so. But I, I but so. trying to trying to control that. I, yeah. Regardless of whether you see what's the point, but certainly if you do see that there is a point in it, it's, it's I think the hardest to control. So it's it's certainly an interesting one without. Mm. Yeah, but anyway, I, I think he's just fulfilled his brief in an interesting way. But it is the second yes. last song on the album. So certainly, certainly. All right. So do you want to um, go now to the last song on the album? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. All right. Okay, so um, we're going to talk about the final sin, the sin of pride. And uh, this is called Fugue Number no. 2, Song of Daedalus. So the definition I got was a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements, the achievements of one's uh, associates or, or or qualities or possessions that are that are widely admired. Also, a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merits, or superiority. 
The first definition doesn't really seem to be particularly sinful or egomaniacal. Uh, I understand Christianity is supposed to value humility, but the first definition doesn't seem to me like it crosses any theological borders that could be problematic. The second definition has a slightly different slant that way that might be more of an issue from a theological definition of what is sinful um mm. so look you're i think the far better read of the two of us uh, yes. so i had to look up i mean i'd heard of icarus as we all have but i didn't yes. know who daedalus is that have i pronounced that right i, I, I believe so yeah okay. i mean um i'm not i'm not too aware obviously daedalus is uh the father of icarus See, I, I didn't until i did the research i didn't know that but uh, yeah yeah. You, you tell, please, you tell the story. Yeah, I mean, I only kind of uh, know this from, um, you know, reading Homer and stuff like that and, 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 and other kind of, you know, more juvenile kind of, I think I think it was covered in The Simpsons um, on one of their kind of mythic episodes. But yeah, Daedalus, I think what's interesting is that it's the song of Daedalus. Obviously, this is a song that Daedalus can sing because he's not like Icarus, he hasn't died. But Daedalus is the man who put the idea into Icarus's head. He's the one who kind of created the concept of becoming more than God as it were as it's seen you know rising farther than the sun as we all know that um icarus's you know flaxen wings are under under the heat of the sun so, i mean i think that what i love about the myth of icarus really is that he, he flew at all i think that is a massive achievement yes. in of itself really rather than he burned there's there's, there's there's a there's a respect in dying in that because he really conquered nature before that no other man has since but you know what's great is that as we discussed in the intro of the podcast the seven deadly sins are something that uh, occur throughout art throughout in mythic cycles you know and here is joe actually recognizing that and actually bringing in old school mythic figures on the final song which i think is fantastic it definitely shows a progression from the opening chaos and obviously this song closes with that same sense of the you know the primordial broth as it were and um, we, we come into that with fuguan as well and it's great that it links with fugue to fuguan and joe again is kind of inviting criticism he's inviting every anyone to call him what he wants really and he doesn't care you know this is that ultimate sin of pride really this, this you know at the end of it he's gone from saying you can call me weird you can call me let's do lunch you know he's just yes. kind of being almost kind of blase about it and then at the end call me Shah call me king call me czar there is this call, call me, me judge and cloud. call me king yeah Call me king, call me God, finally. That release, finally, we hear the word God. I mean, seven deadly sins are tied up with theological arguments, he said, and we wanted to make an effort to not really touch on those because, I mean, whatever, it's been done a million times before, but it is great that the final lyric of the album is the word God. Yes, That's yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, look, there's, there's really a lot to sort of touch on in, in, um, of course, yeah, in, yeah. in the description of this song because uh, the so a good chunk of, um, of uh, the composition, it almost sounds... There, there are some chords that almost sound Gershwin in uh, like in, mm. um, in in its uh, in its progression. I guess it's neither here nor there with the with the with the themes of the song, but it's just something I, I admired about the orchestration. Uh, a little bit of summertime, I got the feeling of in some of the chord progression. But anyway, so mm. with with this song, uh, the first part of it, uh, I, I guess where he's where he's uh, singing in each verse, it's like saying, you might call me mad or you might call me mad as a March hare or something like that, but I can do this. Uh, and it, it doesn't sound too much like a, a level of um, overly, uh, over pride. It's, it's just like, I believe in myself, I can do this. And then when he gets to that last verse, 
where Icarus is actually flying to the sun, or maybe Daedalus is flying with him, where he's going through, you know, you can call me judge, call me king, call me tsar, and finally call me God. He's ascending to heaven. And this is what's sort of tying up with heaven and hell. We started off the album with hell. We started off the album uh, with that evil-sounding violin where in Satan's domain as he's playing the violin to us. But we get this ascension, call me now, call me Tsar, call me Shah. And he, he's singing this, um, that high, well, the, the instrumentation is doing as a three-note motif. He's playing the, he's singing the same note the entire time. Call me Tsar, call me Shah. And you think, oh, mm. is he going to make it? Of course, we know he isn't, but he's going to, and then he sings that last note. Call me God. That's where he falters. He he's not singing. It's almost like call me God as he descends back to earth. Yes. And then we come up with a reprise of that prelude. So he's he's flown his way up to heaven. He was told he shouldn't, and he's made his way. He's fallen not to earth. He's fallen to hell for his sins of trying to ascend to heaven. And I, I just I mean, this is once again for those of you out there. This is not a theological discussion. This is just purely what Joe has presented. And I just love how he's gone and taken this mythology and he's gone and done something really clever with it in the music. And there's even like a slight musical illusion earlier on in the song where he sings, um, I think, uh, see these wings made of feathers of wax and of thread. Uh, see me soar high above all the quick and the dead. And musically in that in that part, he's actually employing the same musical motif that he does in the song about gluttony and really i think he's making a connection between in at least in the context of this song between pride and gluttony because we're not talking about gluttony of food but it's almost like a i I guess gluttony and greed almost could have worked as well different sides of the same coin It's it's a here's this gluttony not for eating but a gluttony to ascend to the highest heights if i can learn how to fly and I can ascend to heaven and I can see God, I will be God. And mm, mm. Um, I, I'm guessing maybe, I don't think I'm reading too much into it, but I, I mean, obviously Joe has gone and made that musical connection because he wanted to bring it everything back full circle. Uh, it's interesting that he chose gluttony to do it and the song about avarice really didn't have an, anything in the way of a riff unless you consider do, 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 do to be. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's not really... <laughs> a worthwhile motif, no. musical motif to come back to, but gluttony certainly works. Mm. And uh, maybe just as a little bit of context as well, uh, Hogmany, were you aware of what that was? No, I wasn't, no. High is in Hogmany. Hogmany is um, New Year's Eve celebrations in Scotland, basically. Okay. Um, that is just the kind of what they call their New Year's, as it were. And there's quite a famous kind of thing that happens at the uh, Castle Rock in Edinburgh. They always have kind of a, what's called a tattoo, kind of like a military yeah, yeah, procession. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've, been, I've um, been there, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's incredible, incredible place. And um, uh, yeah, I love that. Call me hot, call me mad as March, high as in Hogmany. Uh, just watch me and sw- just watch me and weep. I'm out of this maze. And obviously, maze is playing on the idea of Ariadne, uh, the the Minotaur. I believe Daedalus designed the maze. I believe. Yes, if I, I'd, if I'd, read, I'd read that. Like he'd left he'd left Greece because I think he'd killed his own nephew for daring right. to take credit for invention of the saw, which he had created. Um, and he went, I think to, uh, he, he 
took asylum in Crete and he was given refuge by the king of Crete, yes. who in all other ways was an utter bastard. And he, <laughs> went, he went and developed this maze for him, but then the king of Crete kept him locked up in the maze. And that's where he decided, I'm going to fly out of here or uh, with my, with my son to, um, where, but he said, right, well, learn how to fly. I'm going to develop these wings, but don't fly too high to the sun. And that's how that story developed. Yes, yes. And um, we, we're giving our a, listeners an education. You don't just hear about I think music. So. You, get, you get theology. You get, you get Greek myth. You get everything on this show. You know? we, we try to be all things <laughs> to all people. We do, we do, we do, and uh, it's it's just it's just fantastic, really, that this song is um, you know ending on an idea of pride, and there's a sense of like you know not 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 smugness about this album on Joe. Joe isn't really that, but I mean, almost I don't know. This I, I feel quite proud to have listened to this album. I know that's kind of quite a meta kind of thing to think, but when you kind of listen to it and you've gotten through it, you are quite proud of yourself. Not because it was a tough journey, because it was such a fun journey. Mm-hmm. It, I, I, you value it so much. And you almost embody that emotion in a much different way than the songs embody in a more Joe emotion. It kind of translates to you. Like, like you know, the, the song Angel doesn't necessarily make me feel very horny, nor does the song More Is More make me feel hungry. But the song of Daedalus does give me that sense of elation. It really does tap into right. something quite, quite real, you know. Mm. No, no, I, um, absolutely. That, well, that last... That last section, call me Tsar, call me Shah, call me King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You really do feel that. And even though you know the story, so the, is he going to make it? Is he going to make it? And then that fall, oh no, he hasn't, he hasn't made it. So absolutely, he does give that feeling of elation. But then there's a despondency because, well, he's, he's uh, descended back to hell and it, it is. And then it's circular and then you're supposed to start playing the album again and you go back to hell on the prelude. So. <laughs> yes. Everything's secular, you know. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, Dante teaches us this, this. You know, the circles of hell. It's all about that. That's kind of the torment of it, the illusion of progress. Yes. Ah, oh, well, yeah, terrific. No, um, and Joe fully realizes this. Mm. So, um, so I guess really to sum up, uh, and mm. it really is up to every individual listener to determine the value of this record. But you know, the questions which I, I think we've gone and answered for ourselves: Does it work as a concept album? Yes. Oh, at least mm-hmm. I think so, and I'm pretty sure. Yeah, you know, sounds like you. Oh, God, oh, yeah, remarkably so. Yeah. Um, does it work as a record with great songs that don't really adhere to the Seven Deadly Sins as well as they could if you know if you were to sort of say answer no to the first questions, or does it not work at all? I'd be interested to know uh, to people like that. I mean, we had a few, uh, you know, a few people write in to us. Thank you once again so very very much. Hope that uh, you've enjoyed our discussion, but. Uh, really, it is up to the individual listener. And I know that from reviews that I read online that there are a lot of you know, so-called professional critics who really cheaply dismissed it. And you know, I'm not saying every album has to work for every person because, you know, you and I both have albums by artists that we admire that think don't work. And that's fine. But once again, I'm, I really abhor lazy journalism. And, and I'd be interested in knowing... Uh, none of the reviews that I read said in any sort of um, any sort of fashion why it was that the album didn't work. You know, it, it was almost it was just came down to this, oh, it's pretentious, it's wankery, and he's never been as good as Elvis Costello. So um, yeah, well, no, sorry, whatever. This guy's got more creativity in his little finger than you have in your entire writing career you yes. know, as, a, as a rock journalist. So bleh. <laughs> yeah. Take that, Robert Criscale. Oh, you, oh he's... Uh, I have a love-hate relationship. Actually, no, I don't have a love I have a hate-hate relationship with that guy. I, I think every <laughs> review, every album that I've ever loved, 
that I've read what he's had something to say. I think you don't like that? Fuck yeah. you. Um, so anyway, sorry, sorry to be uh, so blatantly rude about it, but I will oh, no, put no. this episode up with a uh, an explicit warning. Yes, yes, yes. So there you go. Well, I think that yeah. concludes our uh, discussion of uh, mm. Heaven and Hell. So did you have a final thought that you wanted to uh, bring about it, Tom? Yeah, I think I think that like Joe Jack Joe Jackson to me. This it isn't Heaven Hell, Joe Jackson. In the same way that some people might like, you know, Mule Variations, Tom Waits isn't their Tom Waits. Their Tom Waits is Nighthawks, Tom Waits. And like right. Joe Jackson isn't as much of a chameleon as Tom. He's definitely changed his style, but he seems to always be kind of embodying certain elements of his personality, toning them down, you know, never really reinventing, more just kind of evolving and growing new skin, you know. Yep. And um, this this isn't the Joe for me. Joe for me is Blaze of Glory Joe, uh, Volume 4 Joe, singer-songwriter Joe with Dave Maybe and Graham Houghton, you know. I'm I'm really excited, actually. Graham, Graham, get... May- Graham Maybe and Dave. Graham Maybe. There we go. Yeah, that was a, a terrible malaprod, isn't it? That's um, okay. But I'm... I'm really, um, actually really looking forward to because, um, uh, weirdly, actually, a month today, which is quite a nice coincidence, I'm going with my dad to the London Palladium to see Joe on his fast forward tour. Oh, you um, lucky sod. There will be, uh, it's weird actually how, um, honest the press releases that came out for the tour. It says there'll be no opening act. Joe will be his own opening act on solo piano. And it says that Joe will play from fast forward and he'll play all the hits, which I was like, that's refreshingly honest. Like, you know. I appreciate that. I'm a fan of Joe enough to, you know, there'll be deep cuts there. But what I know for a fact is he will not play any of Heaven and Hell. You know, none of this is going to get airing out. This is a very specialised record. This isn't a record really to just play on a piano and drums and bass, even though potentially he probably could do it, even though obviously strings are so integral to it as it's the electronics. I'd be interested in hearing him say, right, I'm going to do a small run of shows where I'm only going to do heaven and hell, and I'd be up for that. Yeah. But I yeah, yeah. But he w- he wouldn't be touring the world with that. I imagine like he'd probably find some little theater in uh, New York or in Berlin or or in London and just sort of, like do so. Right, I'm going to do a week's worth of engagements in this little theater for you weirdos out there who actually liked it. But uh, yeah. uh, look, I'm I'm just grateful that I can watch. Uh, sessions at West 54th and get to see it performed in, in that regard. I'm happy with that regard. Mm. But look, I'm, as I was saying to you off air before, I, I'm, I'd be grateful to even see him again in any context because I think he actively said he's never coming back to Australia. So, you know, do me a favour. When you go see him, yell out, get off your high horse, Joe, and go to Australia. Yell out, like in one yeah. of the quiet moments. Or, or maybe, oh, well. you know, towards the end of the show, so if he kicks you out, you say, well, I've seen most of the show anyway. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, so stop, he, stop being a baby. Go smoke somewhere else. In those, in those, in those tender brief snatches of notes in slow song, you just hear this kind of like belligerent brummy shouting out, demanding that he plays Australia. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, you know, it, it could go viral, so I'll definitely do it. Oh, um, but, I hope, I hope so, so. And what, what, what about you, Morris? What, what you're summing up with this album? I know, I know. Obviously, you, you've got so much to say. No, look, I look. I've pretty much gone and said it. This, um, this, <laughs> yeah, al- this cool. album, this album completely worked for me. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think there were individual songs that took me a while to get into but I was really really on board with the album as a concept right from the start and the the store I bought it which no longer exists but um, the guy who used to run that store he runs another store actually now uh, was a huge Joe Jackson fan and before like I sort of picked up I I didn't even know this was available he said oh yeah and it is really good but it is not an album that you listen to casually Mm. you've got to sit down and pour over the lyrics and just play it several times over. And it was great advice. Uh, but I think because 
Joe, I, I guess he also came out with this at the right time in his career where, you know, it, if he'd gone and put this out as an album straight after, say, Beat Crazy, mm. it would have been a lot of what the fuck. But we were already used to Joe as an artist who did different things. And this was just, oh, okay, this is another different thing. And he'd already gone and done some classical. So that wasn't so much of an issue. But here he was still like saying, right, I'm going to blend the classical more with the pop and with electronics. And I think the electronics was a really good move. And I'm not known for my love of electronic type music, but it doesn't hinder it. It really enhances it. So he's, he's gone and really done some clever stuff and he is a brilliant arranger and I, I think that you know whatever else you say you might I, I've got no problems with people saying they don't like the album that's their perspective but to not give him the respect that he deserves for having the guts to put an album like this together I think is crazy uh, yeah so yeah. and so many singer-songwriters have their little pet projects that no one really listens to and no one really cares about uh but the beauty is that joe did this and it's a major success it's, yeah. it's terrific and you know i i similar to robert Criscow, one of mine even though again i have kind of a hate-hate relationship i do just like to know what he says you know whatever i like to see what a few music critics say and i also like to go on uh, all music um, which inevitably is always linked from the Wikipedia. And it's a brilliant website because they pretty much review everything. It's, I, I, I rarely find albums I listen to that doesn't have a, you know, maybe a paragraph, maybe a few paragraphs, but a review, a cohesive review. And, um, their review of Heaven and Hell, they give it two stars and they say that it's, you know, purely for real fans only and that these songs are quite derivative and pretentious. And I'm just like, you're really wrong. Like, you know, the, yeah, just, well, it, the, the thing, emotional that- framework. The, I was going to say, the first part may be right. This may only be for real fans. And yet, yeah. on the other hand, it may be for someone who thinks, I don't care for Joe Jackson's early music, but might listen to this and think, oh, well, why doesn't he do more stuff like this? So, who knows? But but derivative and pretentious and um, melodically uninteresting, I, I know music appreciation can often be subjective, but to say that it's uh, derivative, I think that's objectively, to me, untrue. <laughs> yes. Yes, I agree. All right, so I think that comes to the end of a yep. really lengthy show. I haven't sort of done the arithmetic yet, but this will be a longer program. But hopefully you've stuck with us through the uh, through the program. I hope at least that our uh, three correspondents from the Joe Jackson Fan Club Facebook page have uh, stuck with it. Thank you so much. <laughs> and uh, so I should talk about next month's show. Now, I'm really very excited because this is something I don't think I've done before where I've had the same guest on two months running. Tom, you're joining me again next month. I am. We we got into a discussion. I found out that you're a fan of Gillian Welsh, and I, I was really surprised. I thought that I wouldn't have any problems finding a uh, a partner to talk about Gillian Welsh's The Harrow and the Harvest. And I've got to say, I'd asked several people uh, over the last couple of years, hey, you want to talk about Gillian Welsh? You'd be a fan. And I always got the same response. Yeah, look, I like it, but I've never really sort of gone and pursued her that much. Uh, in particular, one one of my uh, uh, Facebook friends who I thought would have been a shoo-in because he's big into the whole sort of uh, country music uh, songwriter sort of thing. And I thought Gillian Walsh would have been right up his alley. But I was uh, amazed when he said, oh, look, I've never really sort of given her that much of a listen. So um, when you said that you were very much into this album, I thought, okay, well, have you won two months in a row? Let's, yeah, let's I, and I mean, I'm, yeah, I must stress as well that um, – 
whilst Heaven and Hell is something that I've known for a long time and is a fan of, uh, Harren Harvest is one of my, definitely some of my, one of my favourite ever albums. I mean, that's a list that has hundreds of albums in it, of course, but like, um, I, I think, I think it's a, it's a genuine masterpiece. I'm, I'm, I'm addicted to the guitar. Yeah, it's yes. core. That's that's why I got into music. Really, I play guitar. I love guitar. I'm, I'm a huge fan of hip hop and ele- electronic music as well. I'm not specifically like a guitar nut in any way, but guitar is my real music love. And um, the stripped back approach of the album, the fact that it's literally for most of it, the only percussion is Dave Rawlings knocking on the wood of his guitar. There's no drums or bass. Uh, it's this beautiful stripped back Steinbeck Flannery O'Connor images, and you have Gillian and Dave strumming, and Dave often just providing his absolutely just gorgeous lead guitar motifs over the songs. So, so we will be talking about that. And I think one thing that you brought up, which I hadn't sort of uh, considered, you said, right, well, the Harrow and the Harvest, H and H, just like Heaven and Hell, which yeah, a, a fairly superficial connection, but I guess like Heaven and Hell, it does deal with some fairly dark subject matter and, mm. and uh, people's mm. desperation. So we'll be talking about that in uh, in greater length in uh, February's episode of Love That Album. I should say that uh, if you want to get in touch, you can join the Facebook group for Love That Album. It's uh, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Love That Album. You can email me at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au and um, if you want to start up a music-related conversation about anything, I don't care. You want to send me a note saying, I love what you had to say about this show, uh, about this album, do it. You want to say you're full of shit, that's fine. At least you've listened. That's okay. <laughs> yes. um, if you want to, um, please do me a favor. I'd love it if you could, if you've enjoyed the show, recommend it to your friends. I, I know a lot of other podcasters ask for uh, iTunes reviews. And if you want to do that, that's great. But I, I don't particularly worry either way whether you do that. But really what means something to me is if, you, if you're if you a music lover and you think that there's another music lover in your life who might dig this show, just give them a call and say, hey, I've discovered this uh, I've discovered this podcast and just word of mouth. That's, that's how we work. Mm. I'd be immensely mm. grateful for that. So I think that's all the housekeeping stuff. Finally, just one more thing, um, Tom. How, once again, how can the listeners uh, check out Down in the Hole, your Tom Waits podcast? Yeah, um, so uh, just search us on iTunes, Down in the Hole. Uh, search Tom Waits podcast, Google that, put it on YouTube. We upload every episode onto YouTube, also iTunes. Uh, we also run a Twitter feed, at Tom Waits podcast, a blog as well, tomwaitspodcast.wordpress.com. We put a lot of well, we've got a, yeah, a lot of Tom Waits articles on there. We do everything from in-depth reviews of maybe the best live performances to funner articles, such as every time that Tom Waits has mentioned crows in his songs, <laughs> which is a lot. Um, I think there's about 20 different ones we counted across his entire career. Yeah. And um, we've got a new article coming out in a few months about Tom Waits and Scarecrows. And I want to do one about Tom Waits and trains, but I figured it would be too long because um, <laughs> there's so many trains. Do it in, so many do it in multiple parts. Well, there's, it's fun, actually. I'm working on kind of the grand article that I want to unveil. Um Maybe I shouldn't reveal this on podcast. No, no, whatever. No, no, don't, don't. Let's let's you know get it closer to time, and then you can okay. plug away through it. Um, <laughs> there's there's a little teaser. There's a little teaser. But um, yeah, so uh, check do, it out. do you see a book in you? I. I kind of, I kind of want to. I do kind of want to do something like that. I kind of want to. I don't know. I think we spoke before about um, 
Ian McDonald's Revolution in the Head, yes. which is, in my my opinion, one of the best music books ever written. Um, unbelievable catalogue of the recording background of the Beatles, and but also just an analysis of each song. And I, I think I think maybe there's space for that about Tom. You know, um, I don't know how many people there are, but one of the things that the podcast has surprised me is is the span of listeners we've had. We've had people listening from um, Norway, people getting in contact from Senegal, um, you know, people listening from, from Sweden and all that sort of stuff. It, it's been incredible, and, and obviously. Australia and Canada and all that sort of stuff. So obviously there are a lot of Tom fans out there and there's a few Tom fan, Tom books out there too. Well, it for sell where it'd be interesting. Who knows? But as a passion project, I would love to, you know, you never know. You never know. You might get a, uh, you might get some feedback one day. That says, um, you no, completely you know, got it wrong. <laughs> it's, it's funny in, a, in an endearing way. Um, both my mom and Sam, Sam Wiles' mother both asked, um, quite soon after the podcast, do you reckon Tom's listened? And it was like, <laughs> it was Kath- just like, Kathleen won't let him. Yeah. It's like, uh, I did reach out actually. I did, I did email when we first started the podcast. I emailed quite a few of the, I don't know. Obviously you've read Low Side of the Road. Barney yes, Hoskins' have, yes. amazing, amazing biography that is pretty much the Bible of the podcast. We get most of our kind of basis of our structure of notes from that and the background and interviews are brilliant in it. Um, but in the, in the, in the kind of liner notes of that book, um, Barney, um, re reprints some of the emails that he sent to people. And the fact that initially people wanted to, people want to talk about Tommy talks to get in contact with Mark Rebo's people, Keith Richards people, but very soon after it becomes clear that Kathleen and, you know, um, has, has, you know, the shroud of secrecy around Tom, he doesn't give interviews. The only interviews he's literally given, uh, are in the past 20 years on TV are to David Letterman. And the fact that he's not on TV anymore probably means we're probably not going to see him ever again. Right. Um, so uh, the, in my head, uh, there is a fantasy where Tom guests on the final podcast and we discuss bad as me. <laughs> but I can't see that happening, really. You know, no, but, strange, um, yeah. stranger things have happened. That's true. That's true. Um, but part of me likes to, I did actually follow his daughter on Twitter because his daughter's a kind of semi-famous artist. Oh. Um, so she, she knows who we are. Kelly Simone. Very good artist, by the way. Check out Kelly Simone Waits. Tom Waits' oh, yeah. daughter. He's obviously going to be very, very talented. Very out there art, you know, not exactly kind of, um, Matisse watercolors, kind of a bit more found footage, kind of collage <laughs> stuff, but not, it's not very, very the, good. Not if the name Waits is associated. That's the thing. That's the thing. But, um, you know, uh, so yeah, I, I don't know. We'd, we'd love to have someone on board, but, um, I, I saw you had Barney on and that was incredible. So, you know, check, I urge people to check out, uh, Morris's Tom White's episodes as well. They're fantastic. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, and but, also credit should be given to, uh, my, um, my good friend from silver and gold, uh, Alex Ladd, AKA Piccolo, who, uh, joined me as a fellow Tom yes, White fan to yes. discuss, to discuss those two albums. So, um, all right, so look, I think at this stage we might say uh, farewell. And yep. uh, I, once again, thank you so much for joining uh, for me on this episode. Tom, you did such a good job. Come back next month. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so we'll be discussing Harrow and the Harvest by Gillian Welsh next month. And actually, that's really good timing because I'm going to see Gillian in uh, February, uh, her first tour here in 10 years or something like that, and only her second tour of Australia. So I'm hugely excited about this one. I, I literally am constantly checking my inbox for news of new Dave Rawlings and Gillian dates. It's like, they've got to do, just do, just do one London show. They have to, like, I, I don't think Gillian's been in this country for, like you say, 10 years. There's, so. there's, a, there's a special that they recorded on the BBC, which you can There is, yeah. Find, was it in St. Luke's Cathedral or something like that? Yes, yeah, it's on, it's on YouTube. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, looking forward to that. Anyway, so in the meantime, please spread the word and yes. listen to some great music, watch some wonderful films, read some books, and just generally be nice to each other. All right. Anyway, <laughs> thanks for listening. Cheers. Thank you very much. Bye.